Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Modern Squid Podcast, where we get to know the people behind our favorite writers and brands. On this week's episode, I have Amanda Zitto. She's known as Blind Thistle on Instagram and as the Magpie Flies on YouTube. Um, we had such a fantastic time talking during this episode that we went very, very long. If you haven't noticed the length of this episode yet, uh, it's basically four hours. Now, I'd like to think that the entire four hours is absolutely fantastic and fun. Hopefully, you guys think the same. Uh, if you don't make it through in one sitting, I don't blame you, but uh, I do hope that you listen to the whole thing because there are so many good stories that she shares during this podcast. And with that, let's get into it. Every live stream, so there's always something that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I just bought a gimbal too um, for my DSLR. And I've been so normally I'm like right on top of playing with new toys, but yeah. I've been so reluctant to take everything off this setup and put it on a whole new setup only <laughs> to put it right back again yeah. that the, the gimbals kind of been sitting over on the side of my, my bedroom over there. Um, yeah. Waiting for me to get the motivation to disconnect everything <laughs> and get it all installed on the gimbal. So <laughs> Yes, I feel that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I am really excited that you were, you know, that you agreed to come on the show because I've been following you basically since I got into motorcycles. You were one of the first <laughs> accounts that, that I followed online. Because uh, awesome. you, you combine a couple things that I really enjoy. One is art and then the other is motorcycles. So, and then you do some photography and stuff too, which photography is a huge passion of mine. Uh, yeah. you know so my brother is really the photographer i just kind of do it for social media <laughs> <laughs> well you know whether you do it for a necessity or for love either way <laughs> i appreciate it i like good photography i mean like i enjoy doing it i just like my brother's skill is like far above mine um i like barely use like program and that kind of stuff versus my brother who always shoots a manual so i always feel inadequate <laughs> <laughs> they have other settings besides manual yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> um i like i'm part of a bunch of different you know not only facebook groups but i've got some um good photography friends of mine who we kind of form our own little group to kind of critique our work and, and talk yeah. about things and uh one of the jokes is always that peas for professional i approve of this yes like, yeah just throw it in the p <laughs> in the p setting for professional um, <laughs> it's all in good fun though because you know yeah. when i first started out i started out with point and shoot cameras that were film as a kid oh, yeah and that's kind of how i got into it um and you know being broke because i'm a kid yeah. And uh, having a camera where it's like, okay, every single shot has to count because not only am I paying for this film, but I have to pay to get it developed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. And, I, uh, yeah. My grandmother and I used to go around um, yard sales and we would collect old film cameras when I was a kid. Oh, wow. And uh, I was the family photographer because when I was little, nobody would pay attention to me. So grandma would give me the camera and I would take photos of everybody because no, like, you know, nobody stiffens up because you're pointing a lens at them. Yeah. Um, so that's how I got started. And uh, even like the art thing was inspired by my closest brother. Like 
he, he, he used to draw a lot when we were kids before he took up photography and he's like six years older than me. So I would come home, like I was in primary school and he would come home and teach me everything that he learned in his high school art classes so that he could like cement it in his brain. Yeah. So I started drawing because of him and, uh, I wanted to be a jockey first and that's a long story. Anyway, um, when I was about in fifth grade, I decided to, to, that art was going to be my thing. And then my brother went to art school. So I've essentially just been following his path this whole time. I just uh, happened to um, know how to work social media a little bit better than he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a skill, you know, it's a yeah. skill. People don't realize it. Okay. So now um, I do want to backtrack a little bit because you you touched upon the topic of being a jockey and I, I've heard, you know, I've been listening to your podcast and reading articles and, and things like that about you kind of prepping for this whole uh, interview. Yeah. And, you know, so I've heard the story a number of times about wanting to be a jockey. Someone from California moved into your school and was like, no, 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 you got to be tiny to be a jockey. <laughs> yes. But it makes me curious. Have you ever considered since now the iron horse has taken over for uh, a real horse. Have you ever considered racing motorcycles? No. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Um, I have uh, the motorcycle thing. I well, backtracking. Starting with like the wanting to be a jockey was just to be close to horses, to get paid to ride horses, and um, I didn't like the idea of having to take. Um, if, being a Montanan, like no offense to dude ranchers or anybody who makes that their profession. Cause I think that's really cool. You're getting people out into the woods, riding a horse that wouldn't be otherwise. I just never, um, growing up as like a broke ranch kid, I didn't like the idea of taking a bunch of rich city folk around on a horse. <laughs> and like, um, I just, nothing about that sounded fun to me. Um, <laughs> it's like, obviously I have like a different opinion of like that whole thing now, but as a kid, that just sounded like the last thing that I ever wanted to do. Um, so that's where like, I was like, well, other things that I could get paid to be around horses, jockey. And of course, like I had never been exposed to horse racing as a kid. All I knew it was like what was on TV and that kind of stuff. So I had no idea, like there were trainers behind the scenes that were actually spending all that time with the horse. So in reality, I probably would have wanted to be a trainer more than anything. Um, but yeah. And <laughs> when that like kind of killed it when I was like in fifth or sixth grade. So it wasn't like I had a bunch of time to do a bunch of research into this profession that I had been saying that I wanted to do since I was a tiny child. I just wanted to be around horses. Um, and when I was in high school, we ended up with uh, a couple of horses. Um, I did have a horse when I was like eight, but we only had her for a little bit of time. And, um, we had to get rid of her because mom and dad came home and found me riding her without supervision. So, <laughs> um, and so when we, I was in high school, we got Tennessee walkers and that like, uh, just like fed my soul so much. And when I moved to Portland, I couldn't bring them with me. That's that, that was the spark to get into horses because a, I was going back to Montana, like pretty much twice a month at that point in a Oldsmobile. And it was $300 every time I came home. And it's a lot of money for a broke college student to $600 a month on get just gas, getting back and forth to Montana. Um, so like the motorcycle became more of a gateway to travel than anything else. Um, so I totally get like, why aren't you racing? I mean, you want to be a jockey. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> that makes perfect sense though you know because yeah. like you said it wasn't about the racing it was about yeah. being around the horses but yeah. i am curious i guess um when you moved to oregon and you went to start going to school um mm -hmm. at that point you're old enough to kind of figure out the different things the different professions that are related to horses so yeah did you just not consider trying to find a job that would let you interact with horses when you got to oregon or I, was it more um, a matter of time <laughs> i tried <laughs> okay um the thing about like portland is that like a uh, majority of like the horse community um people who own horses the industry around horses in the portland area is very family centered and it's about who you know and uh coming to portland and my only like contact here was my grandpa and he's in the con construction business he's a contractor um so he didn't know anybody who has horses or you know does that kind of stuff and uh at one point when I was like a junior in college, like for my, I was trying to find a summer job. Um, and this is before I started tattooing. I like went to Savi Island. There's a lot of uh, horse ranches out there who'd like do like training and that kind of stuff for rich people. And uh, I went to every single stable, made sure I talked to a person face to face. Like, cause I was like, well, this is obvious. The problem is that I'm over the phone. So if they see me, I'm pretty like good at making people like I don't know. I uh, There's a word for it. Charismatic isn't what I would say, but that's the closest thing I can think to. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm in front of you, we're face to face. I'm pretty good at getting you to see my side, essentially. Sure. <laughs> um, and so I went face to face to like all of these stables on Sabi Island, all of these just like boarding stables, like in Oregon City. And um, they're kind of the outskirts of Portland. And every single one of them told me no. Um, they are either um, like the rescue stables outside of Oregon City. They're purely volunteers. So I wouldn't have been making any kind of money. And they demanded more time than I was able to give and still be able to do a job. Um, and then all the stables off Savi Island were very, it's all in the family. They don't pay anybody who's not family kind of thing. Um, so I tried. It's not for a lack of trying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and then like the motorcycle thing kind of took off. Well, I started tattooing. I thought that was what I was going to do. And that kind of took a downward spiral. And then the motorcycle thing kind of took off after I did the pilgrimage. So. So do you still tattoo? I do not still tattoo. I uh, finished my apprenticeship and uh, I quit that job to get away from my toxic mentor <laughs> And uh, that's why I did the pilgrimage. And I spent all summer working on my bike and uh, came back and I was like, you know what? I'm good at this. Like, this is really satisfying. And I want to get a job being a mechanic. And um, I ended up being a lot tech at uh, a Harley Davidson dealership here in Portland. And uh, at the time that I was hired, their uh, tech manager um, didn't think that girls should be mechanics. So I got stuck being a glorified bike washer for about six months until they got rid of my position. And that's when I started doing events because, uh, their general manager found out that I could draw and that I did videos and that kind of stuff. So 
I took over like their social media and organizing their events for like two years before they got rid of me because they couldn't afford me anymore. <laughs> yeah. So what about, uh, I think you went and worked for Triumph too, right? Or was that the same dealership? Uh, that's the same dealership. Yeah. They're Harley and Triumph dealership here in Portland. I know okay. kind of opposite brands there. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seems to make more sense to put things in one building. So you're not paying for as much space individually, I guess, but uh, totally, you know, at the same time, I guess they're competitors. So maybe yeah, make well, like they're competitors and they're just like different niches really. Um, like Triumph has the, like the vintage classic and then also like the ADV market or the tip end of the ADV market um, for people getting into it. Not necessarily people who are going to go hardcore, but um and that was kind of the thought process of the owner. I get along really well with the owner. He's amazing. We're both Montanans. So we kind of bonded over that. Um, and he was like, well, I was drive. I would drive around a lot on my Harley and then I would see all these dirt roads and I'd be like, what, what's down there? And kind of like, but you know, uh, you Harleys can do it, but it's not comfortable. And it's kind of nerve wracking if you take a 30 grand bike down a dirt road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you just need a sporty with some knobbies, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um so i think that was part of the reason they took on triumph because like the the tiger and the and even like the scrambler is a very capable bike um well now harley's gonna have its own adv bike so yeah it's gonna be exciting gonna be interesting (laughs) (laughs) i think you know everyone's aesthetics are different but for me i hate the headlight on it um, I was just talking to Moto Bob, yes, not yesterday, last week, and he actually really likes the front end. But for me, it's the weakest part <laughs> of the bike. Like, uh, from the side, I think it's a really yeah. beautiful bike. Um, yeah. But that headlight is just, I just don't understand it. It's probably yeah, more no. functional though, right? Because it's so wide. It's got to light up the the ground in front of you a bit better. I Yes and no, it's hard to tell because so much of like whether or not it's effective has more to do with the bulbs and the shape of the light. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think just like whoever was designing the Pan America was the same person who designed the road glide. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I hope it's functional at the very yeah. end uh, because I like well, I think it's going to be it's a good thing. I, I know that a lot of the, the motorcycle industry is like, what is Harley doing? Blah, blah, blah. I think that it's an excellent thing that they're stretching out and like every other brand has like multiple niches within their brand. Like, and Harley is one of the only ones that like is strictly cruisers. So I think it's about time that they kind of stretched out and start doing other things. It's interesting because I am of two minds on the situation because on one hand, I think that there is a valid case to be made for doing one thing and just doing it so much better than everyone else that you dominate that niche. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they're not dominating that niche because there's a lot of good <laughs> cruisers out there. So yeah. at that point, you're faced with two choices. You either diversify to get more people to buy your products or yeah. you double down and start making the absolute best cruisers on the planet. Yeah, um, exactly. And tough. when, when Indian started coming back, I feel like that was really when Harley should have started branching out. Um, Cause Indian has been like nailing their marketing game. Oh my God. They have. Yeah. They're embracing <laughs> social media. I think um, sooner than a lot of the other companies and yeah. in, in a, in a, in a better way than some of them as well. You know, I mean, triumph, I think is starting to get on that bandwagon too. Yeah. 
yes, when they yeah. grab influencers and bring them out, people who are actually riding instead of just, you know, Jason Momoa, who's pretty and rides a motorcycle. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Jason Momoa, you know, but like they obviously were looking for a pretty face to throw on a campaign, um, which, you know. <laughs> you could argue the benefits and the not yeah, so yeah, yeah. at that. least at least they're not putting all their eggs in that basket because they've been doing things like working with queen sit and a few other people to sort of yeah. become more like harley ambassadors uh that are yes. a more uh relatable face i think to the brand yeah. than a jason momoa <laughs> yes and like harley i think like two years ago they tried to do like an internship program where they tried to start that like social like trying to make a social media influencer that's Harley like uh, loyal essentially. Um, but they kind of, I don't know, in my opinion, they kind of, they should have picked influencers that were already established than trying to create influencers who had no experience making videos and that kind of stuff. Um, I was really excited when they announced it because they were going to pick people who had never ridden before. They were going to give them all the tools they needed to get started writing, um, which in theory would have made a great campaign if those people had been experienced in documenting their experiences um instead they took people who were like fresh out of college or fresh out of like some other job market and like threw them into this and some of them did do the videos for like the first like month or something but not the whole summer like they were contracted to um which is very interesting to me <laughs> you know um, i've seen some videos about that saying that the effort itself while it was going on was was pretty successful but then harley yeah. dropped the ball by just completely stopping at the end you know yes. just like yeah. okay we did this this little experiment thank you guys move on your way um when they could have just kept growing it and growing it yeah. yes and yeah if they yeah. instead of having them contracted for a year it should have been like a longer period something that could have been refreshed um, it seemed seemed like a lot of effort and money that was kind of put down the drain for like three months and that was about it um, I think one of their influencers, like cowboy something, space cowboy or something like that, he's like grown pretty well on Instagram. So he's making a name for himself. And as far as I can tell, he's still Harley loyal, but I don't know. I haven't checked in a while. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was a guy who just did a follow-up interview with basically all of the people who are involved in that, um, enterprise or whatever. Yeah. And some of them have really gone on to do great things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them still speak really fondly of Harley they yeah. just were like, well, they kind of, we tried to work with them afterwards. We put forward some proposals and this and that, and they just kind of let it die. Yeah. Part of that is because right after that program, Harley fired all their marketing team mm. and totally started stretch fresh. So um, we experienced a bit of the brunt of that at the dealership when they just, they just got rid of everybody. And it was like radio silence for like a month, which is like ages in dealership time. Um and they just started fresh and it seemed like the fresh team really didn't like make an effort to pick up on any of the efforts that the old marketing team was even trying to do. Um, Which there's some that's, validity of to course, that. just my skewed perspective as somebody who was at the dealership when yeah. that happened. <laughs> but at the end of the day, your, your job needs to be effective. Right. And yeah. If you look at the numbers going on at Harley, marketing is probably not the only problem they had, but it was definitely yeah. a significant one with the type of year-over-year -year declines that they were seeing and the consistency of it. Yeah, you know, it's like you can have a bad year or two, but if you have a bunch of them strung together, something's <laughs> broken. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
I think my my main criticism was like they could have done a better job of transitioning the marketing team rather oh, yeah. than just like flat out firing everybody who had any kind of knowledge or experience about what had been going on thus far. And then just trying to start fresh with people and be like, let's just ignore everything that we've done in the two years that we've been trying to fix this problem. It's almost <laughs> like they had leadership issues over there, right? <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I don't mean to like talk bad about Harley. Like I think every motorcycle like ended like mega head in the industry is trying to figure out what to do with the next generation right now. So, you know, I think that every single motorcycle company you write is in the same boat in that they need to find a way forward. I think mm -hmm. the difference is that some of them have been more successful than others. And for me, I feel a little bit Easy. it's a little easier for me to criticize Harley because I love Harley. I own a Harley. I'm, I'm part of, I feel like I'm part of Harley versus taking <laughs> shots at some other company like Honda or something where I've got yeah. no stake in it. And it would be weird for me to just constantly <laughs> bag on Honda, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but Harley, like all my criticisms come from love because I want them to succeed. Yeah. I, I love Harley. Yeah. I want it to keep going. Yes. Yeah, like for a company that has been around this long, like American based, can't necessarily say American made anymore, but American based, like I want them to succeed. Like, of course, um, I think that not just marketing, but I think that they're suffering from a path that they started down like in the nineties, essentially. Um, and uh, the image that they put forth that like put themselves in the hearts of so many baby boomers is also the image that so many of like my generation and Gen Z's and are kind of like, I don't want to be a part of that, you know? Maybe um, they're just ahead of their, their time though, because you know how everything kind of comes around. Totally. Um, and you know, like one, one year low rise jeans are in the next, <laughs> you know, the next generation it's high rise, like the, the mom jeans. And then, uh, you know you like high waters are considered dorky and the next yeah. thing you know capris are big and famous and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like, uh, just to use jeans as an example you know like everything totally. kind of is cyclical so maybe yes, they're just definitely. like if we just waited out long enough <laughs> <laughs> having a bad image is going to be in style again <laughs> hmm. you know who knows nobody can predict what is going to come next yeah, it's, it's definitely tough. And I, I definitely feel for the people that have to make those kinds of decisions. But, um, you know, they got Zeitz now. I've got a lot of confidence in that guy. So yeah. hopefully. I I am honestly one of the few people who are very excited about the LiveWire. I'm mm. very stoked about it. I know, like, uh, like oh, my God, everybody in our dealership, when they announced that they were going to, like, make us sell one of the electric bikes and we were going to have to install plugs and that kind of stuff. Everybody on the sales floor really groaned. And I was like, no, this is exciting. Like <laughs> this yeah. is the next thing, you know? I don't For me, I think that and I, I talked to other people about this too. This is if anyone listens to the podcast, they're going to hear this again. But um, <laughs> I think a live wire be fun to ride. Yeah. Occasionally, but I would never, <laughs> ever own one because it doesn't have anything about a bike that appeals to me um it doesn't make noise it doesn't shake uh it doesn't smell <laughs> you know it, it doesn't, doesn't you don't smell. you don't shift gears like <laughs> i i feel like i'd be riding a very souped up grocery store electric cart <laughs> if i was riding like what is the point at that point? You're not even, you're not even riding it. Like you're not, you're barely riding it. All you're doing is, is turning a, a throttle and trying not to fall over. And then... 
I mean, you still have the thrill of acceleration. Like, have you yeah. ridden a moped before? But but that's the thing. Like, I'm not a speed demon either. So for me, <laughs> that's why I like Harley's. You get that low end torque and it's kind of fun yeah. to, you know, speed up real fast. But I don't have to worry about getting a felony or running over a kid <laughs> because I'm, I'm 150. Um. <laughs> I think that the live wear is just the like first generation of a series of electric bikes. Just kind of like... Um, Alta, which they purchased to get the technology to make the live wire. I'm, I wish that they would have like taken on a lot more of like the bikes that Alta already had established because I, I thought they were super cool. Um, but like zero and cake. Oh my God. I want a, a cake electric dirt bike so bad. Like, um, and I think the electric market is really going to find its stride in the dirt bike market because so much of that appeals to me personally. I know that a lot of like diehard like two strokers hate the idea of an electric bike but for me like uh so much of getting out of the woods and the reason that i have an adventure bike is to spend time in nature and i love the idea of it being quiet and being able to hear everything else in the woods um mm. instead of just my bike and um i like that i'm not disturbing things <laughs> but the, the problem i guess is that with dirt bikes like Right now, you guys can have a van, an SUV, some other vehicle. Mm -hmm. Bring not only the bikes, but bring a bunch of fuel with you too. Yeah. And then ride around for a whole like camping trip, however long mm -hmm. your camping trip is on dirt bikes. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with electric dirt bike? Unless you've got some gigantic arrays of solar panels, mm -hmm. uh, which are super inefficient uh, for converting you know, light to energy. Like, How are you going to keep them all powered over one day so it's like you get one day of dirt biking and then <laughs> and then they sit next to your your rv or whatever and you do other things like, well i mean i think that a lot of people who do that like if dirt biking is their thing they end up building out their vans so they have a ton of that like battleborne batteries or like some kind of battery system hooked up in their van already so it's not unheard of for you to be able to charge it and keep going and I think that the technology is still very new. Like, of course, it's going to be short. Like thinking about like the first cell phones, like you could barely go like two or three hours, like without having to charge it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think it's just the beginning of that technology. And as it progresses and as more people take onto it, like it will get better. Like I have a phone now that will go two days without having to charge it, you know? And like, yeah, <laughs> that's a valid point. I mean, technology definitely improves. I just, you know, if you look at battery technology over the last like five years, it seems like it's sort of tapered off because mm -hmm. um, most technology has got that exponential curve, right? It's like, mm -hmm. it's kind of like crappy, crappy, and then it just gets better and better and better. Um, mm -hmm. Battery technology, though, it seems like the chemistry has sort of gotten as far as we can at the moment. So unless we get someone who's like, a genius and able to just come up with this breakthrough. I think it's going to be a little while longer before we have, but maybe the charging systems are the way to go. Right. So maybe the, the batteries systems, themselves, um, but also the, the, like the motor itself become more efficient in using that energy kind of like the way that they do the new laptops. Like maybe the batteries are the same as the, the last generation, but the way that they made the operas operating system and all the technology in that laptop uses that power more efficiently. So battery life is longer. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point too. Well, we'll wait and see. I think it'd be fun because you're right. <laughs> I, I do think that the quiet would be a huge benefit um, for outdoor activities and things. Mm -hmm. I just, 
I was listening to some clips of the uh, the long way up with Ewan McGregor, and they're talking yeah. about blowing out poor people's um, <laughs> not poor people's in like they don't have money, but but like I'm yeah. sympathizing with them that he's going in and like blowing out their circuits by trying yeah. to charge his bike. And yeah, they're, they're they're really pushing that technology to its limit right now. I think with this yeah. trip, so I'm gonna be uh, yeah. But I mean, like Ewan and Charlie have like also in the past been that like thing that kickstarts the market like bmw like gs's were definitely a thing in like the adv market before long way round but not nearly what it is now as a result of that series and the amount of people that they've inspired to go around the world um yeah yeah well and again that's why i was stoked at their harleys because i was like yes i knew what they did for bmw and, uh, and i was like you know as much as i don't i wouldn't want to own um you know a live wire i would yeah. love nothing more than a bunch of other people to be like i want a live wire and immediately go out and buy one yeah uh, yes because it supports harley and, and yeah then it it works uh and i think that actually the live wire has got a really great place. I think as a sport bike, it makes a lot of sense because yeah. no one wants to do long distance on a sports bike unless you're Ewan no. McGregor. Um, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're just not comfortable enough, you know? Uh, actually, that's that's kind of a lie because I know there's a woman making her way through. Um, oh, yeah. Um, uh, 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 round the Fire World Roxy. Is that her? Yes. Round yeah, the World she's Roxy. On a, is she's it on the Firebird? Fire yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, yeah. I think she's kind of crazy for that, but you know, she's enjoying it. So <laughs> yeah. Well, and like Teapot One went around the world on a sport bike too. Um, yeah. I don't know if you know who Teapot One is. I, yeah, I follow him. Yeah. 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 And I think that like people like that is just evidence of like any bike is an adventure bike if you try hard enough. The best bike to do the adventure is the one that you have now. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to be really dedicated because that's, I mean, the ergonomics are just so. Um, I mean, I've got a bad back. I've injured it a number of times and I couldn't imagine being hunched over like that. And with all the weight on my wrists, <laughs> for that well, one. you're not supposed to put all your weight on your wrists. You're supposed to grip the tank with your knees. Yeah, but how long, you know what I mean? Like eventually you're going to alternate because the, the, the muscles in the inside of your thighs are going to get tired and you're going to just start like leaning and then you're going to have to like grip again and then lean again. And <laughs> Well, I, I think, think that's why his like that's why he's so muscular, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who needs a thigh master when you can yeah, just drive a few thousand right. miles on a sport bike? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like everybody told me that like doing the amount of mileage I did on Lazarus was stupid too. Um, but I did it, you know. Yeah, but it's I don't know. I say that I wouldn't want to do it on a sport bike, but I would never tell someone they're stupid for doing it. You know, it's their <laughs> life. Like you do what you want. If you think that you're going to be comfortable on a sport bike for however many you know months, do it. Yeah, um, I think it's just uh, the like making the accommodations for whatever bike you choose to do. Like if you're going to do like two thousand miles on like a Coleman, there are people who do adventure like adventure motorcycling on like those little Coleman's that are like 150 cc's. There's no suspension. You did you just like reduce your expectation for how many miles you're gonna do in a day, and you make time to take breaks and stretch. That's the other thing. Like I, the more that I like talk to people who are trying to do longer miles, the more that I'm like, dude, just take a break and stretch. Your body needs to move, you know. <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> well, your brain needs a break too. So yeah. Like I talking to people who are like Iron Butt Association like members, right? That they do that like every single year. Um, there was a sales guy at the Harley Davidson dealership that he attended the Iron Butt rally every single year. 
and talking to people who do that like long distance is their jam like the key to doing more miles isn't going faster it's going slower and pacing yourself um, yeah yeah well yeah. i think Whit Mesa just finished it and um she had like yeah. all these stops planned out on her paper right like she knew like yeah. 250 miles or whatever stop either get gas get something to eat rest yes. take a nap whatever you need and she ended up doing it so yeah um yeah I think that's she's uh, awesome. I love her. Personally, her energy is like, amazing. <laughs> oh, she definitely is. She's she's so fun to watch on YouTube. Um, and she's super nice. Uh, and I, I'm always like, I'm floored at how much time she gets. Um, and I wanted to ask her about it one day. Maybe I'll try to interview her as well. Like, yeah. how how does she have time with kids to get out and do all this stuff by herself? You know what I mean? I know that like the this last trip that like she's posting the videos from where she mm -hmm. went to Tetons and um South Dakota and that kind of stuff. Um the she left the kids with their grandparents. Um Yeah, but how often can you really do that? I wonder. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I guess it depends on the grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, you know, one of the main reasons I'm never having kids is I enjoy the freedom to be able to do what I want when I want to do it. You know, and yeah. worry about um making sure that some small people in my household don't die so oh, totally <laughs> i think like wit is amazing though and we need more women like her creating content like proving that like you can be a mom and you can like be a family person and still get out and have adventures um like i don't think she's getting out and doing like what i'm doing as often as i'm doing it because she has a family and um but she's still evidence like you can do it you just have to make it a priority yeah. Um, I got to stay with her on my loop of the U S and like, I, like we stayed up until like one o'clock in the morning talking. I felt awful because she had to get up at like 6am and get the kids ready for school. <laughs> but like, she wasn't telling me like, Hey, you need to go to bed now. Cause I have to go to bed and do these other things. Like she like makes it a priority to take uh, opportunity, like take those opportunities when they're offered essentially. Um, I, uh, she's, she's just so cool. And like, she's a professional photographer, which I just find super inspiring. Um, I think it's like weddings, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, she works her butt off. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's hard work. I did one wedding. I hated it. So um, <laughs> I admire anyone who can, who can do that. It's just, it's too much chaos, you know? And, and if, yeah. if you're good with organizing chaos and making sure people stay on task, um, it's great profession because you can make a lot of money at it. Um, you know, and especially if you like large groups of people, but I'm more of an introvert anyway. Yeah. So just the fact that there's a large group of people there already makes it more of a struggle for me. And then yeah. trying to deal with people who are going through a lot of stress during that day, but you need things yeah. to move along. It was just, yeah. I, I yeah, did totally. a favor to a friend and I said, you know, don't, don't refer me any more weddings, please. <laughs> <laughs> I, I ha I'm an introvert, but I have my moments where I can be extroverted, which is why like, I love doing events because like, that's like, I can be like, spend all this time by myself planning everything and just like, mm, am I alone time? And then I have like this one big burst of like being enthusiastic and talking to literally everybody and that kind of stuff. Um, this year at Rocky Mountain Roll, we added another day and like, I like felt it. I uh, got partway through the day on Saturday. Like I had to go take a nap and have like a long time because I was like expelling so much more energy than usual. Um, normally it's like a three day run and like everybody leaves Sunday morning. So 
uh, it's like really only two days of me having to like be up and about and talk to everybody and make sure that everybody's having a good time and that nobody needs anything. And it being like three and a half days essentially, because a lot of people who got to stay until Monday didn't leave until like the middle of the day, which is totally fine. Like that's why we made it four days. Um, but it definitely took, took its toll on me. <laughs> oh, how did that go this year with uh, the whole world situation that we have? Was this prior I, to that or is it? Um... Surprisingly well. Um, we discussed it, like not doing it um, because we were concerned because my dad is high risk. Um, and the more that we got closer, the more that I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be bringing these people from all over the country. Is this responsible? I don't know. Um, and as we got closer and closer, a lot of people were like canceling and I was like, okay, maybe we shouldn't do it this year. And, um, we got to about a month out and things were looking a lot better in Montana specifically. Um, and they finally did a mask mandate in Missoula, which made me feel a lot better about bringing a lot of other people into the state. And, uh, and a lot is subjective, like only 40 people showed up. It's not like babes right out where like if they had continued doing it like 1200 people would have showed up in a tiny town yeah um and everybody was really good like i sent a letter to everybody asking them to like mask up if we're going to be in like close proximity if you're really close to anybody wear a mask to wear a mask when they checked in so that like the exposure for my mom and my dad was minimal um all that kind of stuff and everybody was amazing and i think that everybody who came really just wanted a place like they didn't have to talk about what was going on in the world right now and like an opportunity to take a break from all of the crazy and so everybody was really great about keeping their distance everybody was amazing about keeping their hands washed like sanitizing and um i made sure that uh i cleaned the bathrooms every hour on the hour even though there was only like 40 of us um and nobody got sick and uh, it was a good time. And I got really great feedback from everybody who was there about how wonderful it was to be in like that group. And every, we were all outside as well. It's not like we were in a building or anything like that. Um, about how wonderful everybody was about respecting everybody's space and their comfort level um, a lot, like as far as like being precautious and that kind of stuff. Um, I was really impressed. I'm always really impressed every year for Rocky Mountain Roll because we keep it so small everybody you have no opportunity to be anonymous and yeah. i think that goes a long way with everybody being respectful towards each other um and it also just makes a really great vibe because everybody gets to talk to each other you know you can't create a click in a group of like 50 people <laughs> like... yeah <laughs> so how many people generally come out to the rocky mountain roll um first year was 18 because I gave everybody like two months notice. Uh, but we sold like 80 tickets because I told everybody that like, I would only do it again if we could cover insurance. So a ton of people bought tickets with the intention not even to go that year, just so that I would do it again. And uh, second year we had 76 people and uh, that was probably um, max capacity for the field that we were in at that time. Um, we made plans the next year, like, okay, if it's going to be huge again, we can expand into this other field. Cause we have 40 acres on that property. Um, I had just like kind of picked one bull pasture cause it was easy to maintain. And, uh, the next year there was nine of us. <laughs> okay. 
And I was like, okay, well, maybe this is, that was it. It was a one-time thing and I won't do it again. And mom and dad are like, well, you can't quit. You, you don't know if it was just a bad year. You, you have, you have to do it again. And I was like, okay. Like this is like my mom and dad had to be talked into this. Like my, I, my dad, not like as much, but my mom was very like, I don't want all these strangers on my property. Like they're going to break shit and I'm going to have to fix it. We're going to have to get like, I had to purchase insurance specifically to like get mom to be okay with it. And, uh, and everybody was wonderful. And I think that like my dad enjoys it a lot. He loves seeing everybody on the bikes coming down the road and, um, none of our neighbors have complained, which I, I fully anticipated people complaining and the neighbors think it's amazing. And cause we're like full on like 15 miles out of town essentially. And, uh, so I was like expecting our neighbors to be like, bring all of these bikers into our area. Um, but they're super supportive. And like this year they were like, well, you should put signs on our fence to make sure that people don't get lost. And that kind of like. It's been so cool. And um, this year there was 47 of us and I full on was not expecting that many people. (laughs) Um, But it's been great. And we have people who come that are like lifers now. And Mm -hmm. if they can't come one year, they buy tickets anyway, so they can still say that they're lifers. (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's been really cool, and um, we created like a little like family within ourselves, and like new people come every year who are like, "This is amazing," and I'm going to come back because I tried my best to like create an event that I wanted to go to, um, like taking out all the things that I don't particularly enjoy about larger events. Like, there's no bands, there's no commercial vendors, um, nobody's trying to sell you anything. Um, you're literally in a field left to your own devices and we all hang out around a fire pit together and uh, we did add kind of like a bag shower um after the request of a few city city people who didn't want to go down into town to uh to a gym to take a shower um but it's not like high pressure or anything like that it's like literally like one of those solar bag showers and (laughs) yeah yeah gravity is your pressure Yes, exactly. Um, I try to keep it as minimal as possible because the thing that I enjoy about events the most is just getting to talk to other people who rode like to get to this event. Like the the part that I love the most about rallies is the trip to get there and then hanging out with people and then the trip home. Um, and so we kind of encourage people to like take the like the most the coolest route they can to get here and then chill out and hang out and relax and like recharge so that you can get home and not feel like you're you want to die you know yeah and then you can talk about your experience while you guys are out in the field yes exactly yeah i I really like your approach because um as i've gotten older i've gotten more mellow but one of the things that does still kind of bother me is people who complain about something and they don't try to do anything about it yeah (laughs) and i feel like there's so much opportunity in life to make what you think you're missing or or to fix something so you see a problem like like you didn't like having a bunch of vendors at these events and various things so you said you know what let's make an event and then it'll be exactly (laughs) how i want it and it it goes the same way for instance i i tried to be vegan for a little while um and and i couldn't just for multiple reasons but one of the things that bothered me about trying to be vegan uh especially in the beginning when you're trying to learn about it and 
so you join the different Facebook groups, mm-hmm. is that it seemed like there was constantly a war going on in those groups. You walk in and it, or you, you know, hypothetical or you know, figuratively, you walk into the group and all you see is people fighting, and it's such a such a turnoff to the experience that you know it. At least for me, it was one of the final nails in the coffin of just I'm I'm not gonna deal with this anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I did, what I did do was I I'd created another group of my own and it went way better because yeah. anyone who came in and tried to be like other people were in, in the groups, I could just boot them. You know? Yeah. And since then, I mean, my girlfriend still is vegan, so she she can take care of you know, the group and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, um, so many people in life, they just complain, but they don't take any steps to do anything about it. And I'm like, you can do it. You can, yeah. I promise you, if you, <laughs> if you see an opportunity, you can do something about it. Yes. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's like literally being the change that you want to see in the world. Yeah. I mean, cause like you, you said some days or some years you had 17 people, but I bet yeah. you still enjoyed uh, the event, right? Yes. And it's actually amazing when it's tiny because like I, I, we do a raffle every year. Um, there's Al cycle in Hamilton is our Yamaha dealership and he always gives us stuff for the raffle. And, uh, we like, so when it's tiny, like everybody gets something and oftentimes everybody gets two things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, and not to mention, you get to build a bit of a deeper connection with the people that are coming because going from 17 to 40 even means that yeah. if you try to spread your time evenly, you're getting half the amount of time with people. Yeah. Um, and inevitably, you find some person or a group of people that you end up talking with longer. Yes, so, definitely. Yeah. So what, what sparked, though, your event? Did you just one day say, you know what, I... I want my own event and just did it? Or was there some other spark that lit that? Um, I just wanted to have a party when I got home from the pilgrimage. <laughs> like, I didn't mean it to be like a ticketed event. I didn't mean for it to be a yearly thing. I uh, just like, I was like, I'm going to do like 6,000 miles. This is going to be huge. I've never done this kind of mileage before. And I, you know, I think it'd be cool if like everybody met me in Montana when I finished and that would be cool. Um, and then I kind of like, I put it on my like Instagram and then a bunch of people who I didn't like know in real life were like, I want to come. And I was like, Oh, okay. And my mom was like, well, if you have this many people who want to come, you have to get porta potties and get insurance because if we don't know them, like we don't know if they're going to screw shit up. And so that's when it became ticketed thing. And then I just opened it up to the public. Um, and uh, then like a bunch of my friends in Portland who I wanted to come to the party who couldn't come because it was too short notice. So I was like, well, I guess we'll have to do this again I, I get next year, I guess. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so really very organically is what you're saying. It just sort yes, of very from, organically <laughs> from a whim almost. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, so many things in life uh, happen through serendipity and, and end up being you know, great joys, I feel like. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I did want to ask you about is is going through the different articles and listening to the podcasts. Um, one of the common themes I was seeing was that, um, you know, you've got this real longing for Montana, rural life, mm-hmm. motorcycles, um, 
one of the reasons it sounds like you go back all the time is that you really miss Montana and that rural life. I guess my question is, what about that stuff um, do you think causes that sort of uh, um, a desire to get back to it? And what prevents you from just now that you're out of school going back? Well, the prevention part is an easy answer. Um, I met a boy here and the boy was born and raised in Portland and he's a city boy through and through and he won't move. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I have gotten like to the maybe stage with him. Um, we've been together for like seven and a half years. We're going to come, we're coming up on eight here in January. Um, uh, so I love him and everybody who's going to comment, like you should just break up with him and move back to Montana. They can shove it. Um, <laughs> um, but like, af like after a lot of talking about it, we have gotten to the point where like, it's kind of like a, maybe, maybe we can live in both places. Like, cause I, I inherited my grandmother's home in Montana on our property. So I like, I have a, a house there. Um, and so like, maybe we'll, we can live like half the year there and half the year here. I just have to figure out how to financially cover the house in Portland while we're in Montana for half of the year, essentially. Um, and so it's kind of like getting there. I'll get back to Montana someday. Um, and I, I know that I will. Like in my bones, I know that I will end up in Montana before I die. But uh, <laughs> for right now, this is where I am. And I go home as often as I can. So um, what, a, what about it, though, do you think such struck such a strong um, impression on you? Uh, I am a sixth generation Bitterrooter. Um six generations born and raised in Montana and we're a dying breed. There aren't a whole lot of people who are born and raised in Montana anymore. Um, there's a lot of implants. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something about knowing that like generations and generations before you have put their blood, sweat and tears into the same dirt essentially. Um, and I think nostalgia is a big, big part of it. Like so much of my childhood was like amazing. Like we were not rich. We like, and I didn't realize how poor we were until I moved to Portland and I made a bunch of other friends and I was like, learned about their childhoods. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but like, I think that's just a testament to how amazing my family was and how incredible my mom and my dad were that at no point did I want for anything. I was always fed. I was never hungry. We always had clothes. We always were warm in the wintertime. Um, it was a wood stove in a trailer, but I was warm. And um, I think when you have those basic needs met and like you're not you don't feel like you're a part of a rat race. You get to appreciate life in a different way, I think. Um, and when I was much, much younger, like the property was like 120 acres. Like I had so much room to play and I didn't even have to like leave our home, you know? Um, there's this big ravine that runs to the middle of our property. And like, that was my playground. And um, like, that like fed my creativity so much, still feeds my creativity so much because like, it felt like anything was possible. Um, you just had to imagine it. And uh, I think like so much of my love for Montana, A is just like being surrounded by mountains. I'm a mountain child. <laughs> and um, also 
uh, that feeling that anything is possible. And if you try hard enough, you can make it happen. And being in Portland felt very caging, um, restrictive. And when I moved here, a lot of people didn't like me because I was a ranch kid. Um, that kind of like vegan uh, toxic culture where, oh my God, you kept animals and you killed them. You are a horrible, horrible person. And all they have to base that opinion off of is like uh, extremist documentaries that they saw on Netflix of feed farms and commercial animal slaughter. And that's not the way that I grew up. Um, animals were as important as your life. Like essentially, um, I remember I have memories of like going out in blizzards when I was a kid to make sure that the calves didn't freeze to the ground, you know, um, that kind of stuff. I was like, that's a tangent on its own, <laughs> but, um, I don't know. It's a simpler way of life. And, uh, I guess I'm always trying to get back to that part of me, I think if that even makes any kind of sense i don't know no, no, it, it definitely does make sense and i guess i'm curious that if the current boyfriend knows all that um what's his equally strong motivation uh for staying because uh, it, it definitely sounds like it's something that's really really important to you and, and that type of uh, a conversation usually leads to some sort of compromise you'd hope you know like, <laughs> why why should one person in the relationship get their way but i mean i guess it sounds like you're slowly getting to some sort of a you know compromise from him but for me yeah. it just it seems pretty difficult to hear that story and think that someone could be still so stubborn about it you know? <laughs> we we are both stubborn in our own ways <laughs> oh of course oh definitely i'm sure <laughs> everyone's got their thing right um, but also, like, his whole family is here. And I, like, being somebody who has been away from my family for so long, I don't feel right, like, trying to drag somebody away from their family just so that I could be close to my family when it's much easier for me to go to Montana and back than it is for him. Like, he's not, he's a homebody. He doesn't like to travel a lot. So um, I wouldn't feel right dragging him to Montana knowing that him have traveling to Montana to see his family is like above and beyond like what it, it what it is for me to go home to see my family um and uh like we've talked about it a lot and like when I first graduated when we graduated college together like I had full intentions of just moving back to Montana and we fought about it a lot and uh we kind of like came to like this kind of realization it's like does it really matter more than our relationship um and I kind of thought no not really and uh because he supported me through everything how many significant others do you know who would support you like yeah you can go off and live off of a bike for two and a half months and essentially only call me once a week and um and trust you through that you know um I mean, and the I answer would be all the good ones, but how <laughs> yes. many of them are there, right? I don't know. <laughs> all the decent humans out there would, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, but finding those decent humans is uh, a stretch. <laughs> yeah. um, and also because like he, 
not necessarily like the first boyfriend that I've ever had who understood me, but um, one of the very few humans that I have been, ever been in a relationship with who understood me and we have art in common. He doesn't ride, but he is also an artist. And like, that is a huge, huge part of me as well. And that was so much more important to me to have somebody who understood like when I get in a groove and I need to not be touched so that I can get through this piece or like, you know, like stuff like that. He like, if I get into a grind and I like, I'm going straight through, he'll bring me food to make sure that I eat. And like, like everything that's part of like a healthy relationship and, uh, that means so much more to me right now than just being home and knowing that I can go home whenever I want, like, you know, yeah. Um, just cause I'm not living there right now. I know that I will someday. Does that okay. make sense? Does that answer your question? I don't know. No, no it does. It does answer my question. And it, and it shows <laughs> one of the weaknesses of being um, an outsider because the, the social media experience makes you feel like, you know, people more than you oh, really yeah. do. Right. <laughs> And so, you know, you're only as good as the information you're getting. So, you know, you, for me, I'm, I'm reading all these articles and listening to the podcasts and, you know, I'm watching your YouTube videos and you seem to have such a passion for Montana and yes. the rural life. And you, you're always talking in these different interviews and things about missing it so much yes. um, that it seems like it would be one of the top priorities in your life to kind of get back there. Um and because I, you know, my own view on relationships is that, you know, people should be able to do what they want to do in the relationships yeah. that it's, it's tough to be like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, we fought about it. We're staying here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? But the context is, you know, everything you just described and it, and it makes a lot more sense when, um, you know, you're, you each have your, your things and you, you found someone who compliments you in so many other ways. Like if you've got one area, if anyone has one area in a relationship where they've got some conflict, then you're doing pretty well. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like if there's anything that I've learned from like my parents' relationship, everything is compromise. And like, as long as you're both happy in the end, that's all that matters. Yeah. So my own tack is that I feel like people should compromise in a relationship on whatever makes sense to them. To me, it's small things, but for <laughs> things that kind of touch on your core, that's when it's like, ah, uh, at, at that point, maybe you aren't just aren't a right fit, you know, <laughs> um, at least that's my own perspective, but yeah. I've been lucky enough to, to find someone who, you know, the things that we compromise on are, are things that are perfectly reasonable in my mind. Yeah. Uh, we don't have any of those sort of hot button things that would touch on the core of who we are that we disagree <laughs> on um, yeah so anyway for what it's worth um so i guess let's uh switch gears a little bit again and um i kind of want to go back to horses in indirectly mm -hmm. you said that you know once you discovered motorcycles they really became part of your art um mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if before motorcycles were horses a big part of your art. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if um, so, do you still incorporate horses? And if so, uh, where can we see stuff like that? Um, I think, oh my God, when was the last time I drew a horse? Uh, college, probably. Um, a lot of my the work that I made in college was inspired by how out of place that I felt in the city. So there's a lot of horses like surrounded by buildings or something like that. Um, a lot of drawings of cowboys and 
that kind of and I could be kind of became obsessed with like the world like 19th century wild west essentially that was what my thesis was about actually it was um the 19th century and uh oh gosh I don't know how much of that is still up on the internet <laughs> I mean I'm sure it's still up on the internet it's just like in dark corners now um I had a Tumblr when I was in college so I guess if you really wanted to dig through it you could go to blindthistle.tumblr.com and that I has a lot it. of yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did, you know, I, but I think that I didn't scroll down long enough because I was seeing a lot of more of your tattoo art, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, which, by the way, that I really liked your tattoo art. It kind of reminds me of sort of Americana meets um, watercolor or something. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was really pretty. Anyway. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you, um, I think if you put that URL in it and do like backslash archive, you can like get back to the older stuff a lot faster than the the infinite scroll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so your horses might be on your Tumblr. Good to know. Yes. <laughs> have you, have I mean, you I mean, thought I about? I think if you like, if you backtrack on Instagram long enough, you'll probably find it too. But that's gonna take a while. <laughs> okay. Um, do you do you feel like you're just kind of not out of love but artistically out of love with horses now because you you did a lot early on and you're just more focused on motorcycles or do you feel like that um you're focusing more on things that are sort of relevant to getting commissions and stuff um i think a lot of my work in the last three years has been pretty dominated by um by commissions like what i'm getting paid to make and um and also like what feeds the algorithm unfortunately um, like it, I can draw like as many hot ladies as I want, but nobody wants to look at them. You know? <laughs> um, and like same thing, like with horses and that kind of stuff, it's just like, it's not the niche that I have made for myself. Um, so it's not what my audience is interested in. Um, and I think that's okay. Like I find my own ways to like sneak in like stuff that matters to me in my work. Like um, I have a piece of um, uh, uh, like an Africa twin going through a landscape, but there's a cowboy in the background, but you have to look for him. Um, I, I noticed a lot of people missed him, even though I think he's pretty obvious. I think that I have the postcard to show you. I don't think that it'll come across very well, but this one, that one. I own that that one yeah yeah okay oh i didn't oh geez um <laughs> i didn't notice that that was a cowboy yeah <laughs> interesting that's really cool now i can appreciate that even more i have it uh, yeah. hanging above my desk actually yeah and i'm like i do like like stuff like that he's he's oh i remember that one. See, but yeah. yeah um i find little ways to sneak it in there um and there's like most a lot of my work is just like there's little hints of just redneck hidden in and in, in corners that I don't think a lot of people notice, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you you grew up sort of redneck or? Um... Oh yes, I am a hundred percent redneck. Okay. <laughs> the only reason we live in a home and not like a fifth wheel or something like that is because like that's like that was Jonathan's family, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you feel like um is representative of redneck because i know like when i think of redneck it, it might be different than what you're thinking of with redneck. So i'm curious 
curious what yours is because mine's like camo cowboy hats in your wedding with um you know your latest deer hunt you know hanging behind the preacher as you guys are getting married (laughs) 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 what's your idea of redneck redneck yes um like a lot a lot of uh camo uh, yes and duct tape and um for me like redneck is based in ingenuity you use what you have to make whatever you want to do work essentially um so i when i was growing up my since we were one of the only ones in like our friend group growing up that had property a lot of people like if their car broke down you know if they lived in town they're like well can i just park it on your property and i'll like get the money together to fix it and of course that never happens in the valley um (laughs) everybody lives uh uh pretty lower lower middle class in the valley compared to like portland or any other big city um so like getting enough money together to fix a vehicle is kind of unheard of it's cheaper to get another beater and keep that running than fix like brakes or suspension or anything Mm -hmm. um so we used to say that we were car poor because there was a hundred plus cars parked in our backyard (laughs) (laughs) do you guys ever set a deadline like you know if you don't have it done in a year, we get to part out your car. Um, no, um, mostly it's like my dad was the one bringing most of the vehicles in and like, it wasn't a thing. I, it wasn't until like I was uh, about to graduate high school that like he finally like hired a, a, a crusher to come to our property down from Missoula and that crusher took out 80 cars and there's still a lot of cars on our property. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So, I mean, you never took up sculpture then, huh? No, I didn't take up sculpture, <laughs> but I like did a lot of weird craft things. And um, I like uh, one of the things that I missed the most when I m- moved to Portland was just not being able to like go out into the backyard and like find what I needed to make something work, essentially. Um, I made like we had a couple trailers on our property as well, just like from like my siblings, like trying to come up and move onto the property and then they would just leave their trailer there or something like that. So then I would make like a little like clubhouse essentially, um, the redneck version of a tree house out of an old trailer uh, and like pull like uh, the, like the backseat out of, a, of one of the cars and make that my couch and like make uh, stairs and a side table out of old tires and, um like that's what redneck is to me like you use what is available to you to make whatever you want to make happen um and uh for a lot of people that is camo and duct tape and (laughs) (laughs) that's really funny Um, and uh uh, a lot of thrift store clothes (laughs) well i mean that's just practical right i mean yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think um Portland's got to be big on thrift stores, I'd assume. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. That was such a culture shock coming over here. Because, like, you can get a pair of pants for $4 at the thrift store in Montana. Um, uh, it's getting worse now because so many other people are moving in and uh, raising up those prices. But when I was a kid, you know, like, you get a pair of pants for $4 thrift store that was, like, $30 at the retail store, you know. Um, and here... Like a pair of jeans, twenty five dollars in the thrift store. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> what? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think it's a combination of thrift stores are getting a little bit more savvy. And yeah. the hipster movement has really, I think, bumped up demand because yes. in the past it was more, I think, people who needed a thrift store would shop at the thrift stores. Yes. Um, versus making some sort of a political statement by shopping. Yes. Yeah. Like so much store. of the thrift store culture in Portland is that um like zero waste zero waste movement for one like the hipster movement there's a lot of thrift stores in portland that are like the people who own them uh uh spend a lot of time oh my god what is the word uh narrowing down the the selection that they have it's it's um uh yep Make it like a boutique experience or something. Yes, yeah, like a boutique experience. It's curated. That's curated, the word that I want. Yes. Curated selection of like things that they think that their audience are about. Um, like the the most notorious one I can think of is like the Buffalo Exchange on Burnside is so curated. <laughs> and like they do like pay good money to if you sell their your clothes to them, but uh, it has to be a certain brand. It has to be in a certain condition. Um, for them to take it because they're they know their genre (laughs) that's really funny and you know at the same time i think it's like everything else it's it's multifaceted right because in one respect it's probably good for the planet that more people are avoiding fast fashion and feeding the machine of globalization and then on the other hand people who need thrift stores are now having to compete with the fact that it's in you know in vogue to go shop at thrift stores so prices naturally go up and then you know you get curated (laughs) yes curated products at your thrift store where it just used to be a utilitarian place you could go it's like I, i need a shirt or a pair of pants or overalls whatever you can go get them get out uh and now even goodwill I don't know if you've been going to Goodwills, but even Goodwill, there's one right next to my house. They'll have separate racks where they've got sort of the new, um, like almost like new releases in video store, right? Like this stuff just came in and it's from a name brand. And so it's going to be twice the price until (laughs) until it doesn't sell. We make fun of the Goodwill that's in downtown because the downtown Goodwill is curated like, oh my God. Like they, they only have name brand things in the downtown Goodwill. (laughs) like and everything is like two or three times as expensive as any other goodwill in the city (laughs) that's crazy (laughs) um like the good thing like though is that there are still a lot of mom and pop thrift stores like you just have to get out of like the main metropolitan area unfortunately um and like that part is not so great for like the the families who need those thrift stores in town that can't afford the gas to get outside of town but um, the Portland does have a thing that we call the bins mm-hmm. and, um, that is like the mega goodwill where all of the donations are sent before they're cleaned and they're like dispersed to whatever part of the city. And so if you go to that one, like you do have to bring gloves and like a mask and that kind of stuff, because you're going through stuff that hasn't been cleaned yet. Oh. Um, so it's in the state that it was given to goodwill and you would not believe the state that stuff people give to goodwill. Wow. Um, I like uh, when I was college student, we would go there like as a group, we would all, cause I was also still the only person that had a car. I don't know how I may always make a friend group that I'm the only person with a car. I, I, it just happens. Um, anyway, so we'd all pull onto my car and we'd go down to the bins and uh, you know, we'd like glove up and like mask up, like go in. Cause you can buy clothing by the pound there. 
And so it doesn't matter what brand it is. It doesn't matter what condition it's in. Like you buy clothing by the pound. And we found a pair of pants that like somebody had like put a pudding cup in and it had exploded. Pudding cup. (laughs) Yes. Is that what you're telling yourselves? (laughs) (laughs) And like, we're just like, who does this? Like you're going to give your clothes to charity and you just, okay, that's fine. Whatever. Uh, did, did you guys you end up buying them? No. <laughs> they you weren't my the size. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's um I can totally believe it though, because I feel like some people just sort of use it as a cheap way to dump their stuff instead of yeah, you know. I mean, depending on yeah. where you live, you have to pay by the bag for garbage. Yeah. Um, like you yeah. like and also just like your you're still avoiding that like deep guilt of throwing away clothes. Um, so like ultimately, like still, I would still much, much rather people donate their clothes to Goodwill than ever throw them away. But um, yeah, it seems an unnecessary waste. Not yes. that any waste is necessary, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Even more absolutely. so. <laughs> um, and like, and, and not to like give like Portland thrift stores like a bad rap. I think it's incredible that they've been able to do what they have been able to do. And like, and get past the stigma that seems to have come out of the nineties about like shopping at thrift stores is a bad thing. Um, because I think that that is amazing. And I think that like, that is such a more sustainable model. Um, I think that like, if we could get away from like, uh, you know, mall fast fashion stores and get back to like sustainable brands that like, you know, they are more expensive, but their clothing lasts so much longer. And like blue sign companies, the ones that like, you know, they pay their workers a living wage and they just like, they source their materials sustainably. And, um, and then having that trickle down at the thrift stores. And then so people who can't afford to buy those brand new can then buy clothing that is going to last a long time. Um, and like and continue that cycle because when they're done with it they can donate it it back and it can continue to have a life and i think that's really important um yeah definitely and and, yeah you know if the fires aren't enough of an example of what can happen if we ignore the world um yeah you know the pandemic that you know we've got one right now and there's gonna be more in the future i'm sure as things warm up um i was reading an article about reindeer like there was a, um, a plague that happened to reindeer because the permafrost uh, melted and all these reindeer that had died who knows how long ago had some sort of bacteria or something in them yeah. that in, ended up infecting the local populations currently um, so the more we can do you know, because there's there's few low hanging fruits out there. Really, I feel yeah. like where you're not going to make someone too angry. Like, for instance, <laughs> California saying no more gas vehicles or no more gas cars. After, oh my god, that was crazy. <laughs> like, <clears throat> I don't know how that's going to last. Uh, we'll see, maybe, maybe. But I feel like the next uh, Republican governor they elect is just going to undo all that. But um, <laughs> I mean, like they didn't say that like you couldn't have a gas vehicle. They just said no, they you can sell, sell any new ones yeah, after yeah. 2035. And Which they left out be... motorcycles, by the way, street legal motorcycles. Which I was motorcycles. happy about, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just dirt bikes and ATVs. <laughs> it's really... Uh... You know, it just goes to show how complicated people are because at the same time that I think that we need to be doing as much as we can to keep the world um, from completely um, 
burning up and and all those things i really dislike nanny states so i, I don't know if yeah. i ever live in california where someone told me you can't swap out your exhaust which by the way i have a stock exhaust on a harley and i'm not in a hurry to swap it so it isn't even yeah. as if like I yeah need it's it. not like it's, it's not like you're going out of your way to flaunt the system but like it's like i like all my vehicles are still like based in montana because like my truck can't pass emissions in portland <laughs> And I go home enough that I'm still a dual citizen, so I can do that. But like, and I help with the ranch enough, like I'm part of that business and that kind of stuff. It's like all a mess anyway. But that's you part own a of like, house up there. yeah, I own a house there. Like I have an address there. Like, um, so like, yeah, some all my vehicles are made, are still Montana licensed because like my truck can't pass emissions in Oregon, not because it's like like gas guzzling it's not like it's producing smoke all the time it's because one tiny sensor in my engine is broken that says that i'm not feeding my like fumes back into the engine to burn off again it is doing that but my sensor that is broken so i can't pass emissions here <laughs> and none of the cars on your uh, your dad's or your parents property has um a sensor you could just pull out of there no no <laughs> Like, oh my God, like my, so my dad and my brother and I, I have, um, I'm the last of six kids, by the way, I keep talking about my one specific brother because he's the closest to me. Um, but I do have like four older brothers and a sister and, uh, Gary is just the closest one to me in age. Um, anyway, so Gary and my dad and I all have F-150s. <laughs> but, but they're all different years, so we can't switch parts. <laughs> You guys should just swap cars, you know? You take the one that will pass emissions out in, in Portland, and they take yours. But, like, also, like, my, like, motorcycle plates in Montana are permanent. And you have to pay registration on a motorcycle, like, every two years in, in Portland. And it's, like, 200 300-some dollars, and it's stupid. Does, is Portland one of the states without a state without a um, state income tax, though? Or, or is that? We don't have sales tax. Oh, that's what it is. You don't have sales yes. tax. So, I mean, they're, no, they're just trying tax. to get get the money wherever they can, I suppose. Yes. Um, yes. Um, it also keeps, um, like, if, uh, Oregon has so many more larger cities than Montana does. And so, like, emissions is a much bigger concern here than it is in Montana. Um, so, like, on that end of things, I totally understand why, like, that stuff is there. And, um, like, there's so many niche... Uh, motorcycle culture things in Oregon where they do like remove the stock exhaust and um, do everything that they can to a vehicle, like removing the catalytic converter and everything else to make it sound better, that kind of stuff. Um, so I understand why the laws are there in Oregon. Um, I still would rather have permanent plates on a motorcycle, even if permanent plates in Oregon was much more expensive, I would pay it. <laughs> like, oh yeah <laughs> yeah i mean even you know i've got a truck right now that um i haven't re-registered because the registration expired during the pandemic and mm -hmm. it's like you know I, I now i found out that they have a new process in place where you can kind of get this one year extension uh, and mm -hmm. it's sort of covid friendly where you don't have to interact with anyone or anything but prior yes. to that it was like they have to stick their head in your car and do all oh. these things and i was like really this is not yeah. worth it i got a motorcycle yeah. i'll ride that around i don't need the truck for anything um, yeah. so i've just been kind of putting it off but now my girlfriend's ac went out in her car oh, no. 
and my truck has AC. So it's the, the plan is we're going to get mine registered again too. So if she needs to go anywhere, cause we live in Phoenix and yeah, it's you know, kind of not, vital. Yeah. It's not that optional out here. <laughs> yeah. That's like, it's like having a heater in Montana. That is not an option. It is a requirement. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't <laughs> die. It's, it's, it's a requirement now if, if your goal is to never come back from your latest trip you know yeah, yeah, it's fine yeah <laughs> then you're set yeah um, that's like montana like because they don't have the emissions um i i can re-register the truck online i don't have to go into the courthouse oh that's um, so fantastic isn't it nice <laughs> it is it is you, you want to know something funny when I was a kid, I used to dream about moving to Montana. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the reason I dreamed about moving to Montana was that I, I was under the false assumption that land would be super cheap because no one wanted to live there. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm talking like seven, eight years old, like super, super young. Um, and I was, I was just like, oh, my gosh, I could go build such a big house out there. I wouldn't have anyone around. I could be by myself <laughs> and it would be dirt cheap. So I wouldn't have to make that much money. And then later on in life, I found out actually it's pretty expensive to live in Montana. So that's that's probably not going to be. I mean, like cost of living is lower, but you pay out the nose for property tax. Yeah. And I think Uh, um, at the time I was looking into it, it seemed like the the actual prices of houses and ranches and and things like that were pretty expensive. So, yeah, um, like if you're going to get established property, it's expensive. Um, And then it also depends on what part of the state, because like if you get like somewhere in central Montana, eastern Montana, it's going to be a whole lot cheaper than western Montana, um, because then you're talking about plains country and there isn't a whole lot out there. Um, there's all, but there's also like stuff outside of like three forks. If you get property that doesn't have, you know, if you're just talking about base property, you can get like 15, 20 acres for 15 grand, which is unheard of in Oregon. Um, but you're still talking about having to put in power and water. And, but if, you know, if you make a shack and you can live off the land, that's, that's like, that's not that bad. Well, the goal was a castle. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> 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 when, when I was a kid, I, w- I really wanted a castle. Um, and that that sort of belief um, got sealed in when we moved to Italy. And we were uh, like, you know, we, we would ride around and visit all these castles and stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, how can I have a castle? These things are amazing. And I don't know why I got Montana in my head. But for some reason, I just I had this belief that no one wanted to live there. So everything would be so cheap and I could be away from people. And then as you get older and you like start looking to things, it's like, oh, no. And then plus no, I discovered I hate snow. Oh, yeah, that's a problem. At the time that I was making these plans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that's uh... all went out the window. You kind of have to love the snow to live in Montana. Yeah, and it's amazing how much I dislike living anywhere with snow. I lived in <laughs> Illinois for a few years, and that was a miserable experience. And that, you know, where we were living wasn't even the snowiest part of Illinois, you know. And I lived in D.C. and New York for a while. And in those places, we didn't get huge amounts of snow. But the amount of snow we did get Absolutely. was so miserable, I uh, I couldn't handle it. Um. So yeah, multiple reasons popped up to say Montana's probably yeah, not the place to retire. 
See, I love, I love Montana winters uh, because like we, like, well, where I grew up, we were higher, high elevation. There isn't a whole lot of humidity. We'd like, when it does snow, it's a very dry snow. Like, um, and in Portland, it rains six months of the year and you can't see the sky for four months Perfect. because it's just clouds. It's just gray clouds. You're under a gray blanket and I didn't know that I had seasonal depression until I moved here. <laughs> See, I hear that, and I think that I think I think a softbox, a natural softbox for most of the year. Oh, we have um, we have a sad light now <laughs> that I have to sit next to for like a good two hours of the day every day in the wintertime. Wow. Um, but you know, if I could just see the sky every once in a while, that'd be cool. <laughs> I actually, you know. I get migraines sparked by flashes of light oh, sometimes. Okay. And yeah. so the glint and glare out here in Arizona, because if you want to talk oh, about God. sun, yeah. sun, we, yeah. have, we have no clouds, basically, you know, it's, <laughs> every day is sunny and it sounds amazing unless you get migraines from glint and glare and I'll yeah. be driving in or back from work sometimes. And those the cars, like the sun will hit the windshield a certain way and it'll oh, hit me in the eye. And the next thing you know, I'm getting a migraine. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's no winning for you. You either get the snow or you get sun but migraines. That's all right. I uh <laughs> I keep my windows closed at work. I used to have coworkers come up to me and they'd come into my office and be like, "Why are all of your blinds closed? Like you've got <laughs> you've got these giant windows you can look out of and you've made it into like a cave." And I was like, "Hey, I get migraines from light, you know." Um yeah. It's specifically when it comes in at an angle to my eye somehow. Anyway, mm. it yeah. is what it is, but I work around it, storm. Like, keeping the yeah. uh, blinds closed. I make sure that I wear sunglasses, like really good sunglasses when I am driving. And at the house right now, uh, I got a 32 inch monitor for my desk where I work and I put it right in front of me. So it blocks the windows. Oh yeah. So yep. it's been perfect. Yeah. <laughs> No snow. I can ride year round because uh, even though it gets to over 110, I'll still, you know, gear up in everything and ride around. And as long as I, you know, pace myself and make sure I come back within a reasonable amount of time, then I can still ride even in the height of yeah. summer. So yeah, and like and winter is ideal down there in Phoenix. Oh my god! The benefit it is, of it having a broken so clutch in Phoenix. It was amazing. <laughs> How long were you in Phoenix? I was there for a week. Okay. Um, Is it on this latest trip or on a different trip? Uh, March 2019. So when I tried to do the Cabder and I burnt out the clutch on the Tiger, I ended up in Phoenix because that was the closest Triumph dealership. Um, and the way that my uh, roadside assistance works is that they'll take me anywhere um, as long as it's to the dealership if I have a, an issue. Um, otherwise, it's like 10 miles or something like that. And we were in... Uh, Oh my gosh, somewhere in Southern California. Um, and uh, my clutch broke. And so it was either an option to go to like freaking, I don't know, like San Diego or something like that, or to Phoenix. And uh, at the time, Tim was still in Phoenix. And I was like, well, I can get a free ride to Phoenix and I could maybe I'll see Tim while I'm there. But like, that sounds a whole lot better than hanging out in San Diego. Um, and so my insurance covered the tow of like, 
two, 300 miles all the way to Phoenix. Wow. <laughs> uh, Who's Tim? Uh, Tim, uh, 40 times around. Um, it's his channel on YouTube. Uh, okay, Tim Collins. Hmm. Oh my God. This might be like the first time that I've met somebody who know, knew me before Tim. Hey. <laughs> 40 times around, you said? Yes. Yeah. His uh, channel name is FTA Adventures now. Okay. I'll uh I'll check him out. Yeah, he's uh like a lot of people call us like the king and queen of the ADB niche on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm having uh Jocelyn Snow on later today. Yes! Actually, uh I'll be talking to her and um talking about ADV people. I mean, she created an ADV like obstacle course on yes. her property. I, I guess I my so question much. to you is Where's your ADV course on your parents' property? You know? <laughs> See, Jocelyn is an incredible writer. <laughs> like, she just, her technical skill is amazing. I, on the other hand, am somebody who's like, I just want to go over there and see something pretty. And it uh, doesn't matter how slow I have to go to get there, I will get there. Um, I am like the worst role model for ADV because I have taken no classes. Uh, uh, everything that I know about riding on dirt, I have learned from trial and error. <laughs> A lot of error. <laughs> and wow. every time I think about taking one of those classes to like get better, you know, uh, I look at the cost and I'm like, I could go to Montana and back three times for the cost of that class. I think yeah. I want to go to Montana instead. <laughs> but you know, is there really a price on education? I mean, there's not. No. And, and this is I just think, me prioritizing travel. <laughs> I think that she might offer um, those types of classes too. Yes. So yeah. you might be able to kill two birds with one stone and hang out with Jocelyn <laughs> Snow while also learning to be better in the dirt. <laughs> So, and, and it's a trip as well, right? Because she's based in California and yeah. you're in Oregon. So you could make a yeah. trip out to wherever she's at on your bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to justify it to yourself in other yes. ways too, right? I mean, I've yes, got this mental other, gymnastics yes. all the time about when I buy equipment. It's like, <laughs> yeah. if I do this, then this, this, and this. Yeah. And I think like also like a lot of the ADV market focuses so much on like doing this gnarly like dirt things you should be doing on a dirt bike with a big bike and um for the sake of doing it and i i don't do adv to say that i went up some gnarly route on a mountain i do adv so i can see new pretty things that i haven't seen before um and like doing the cabder like really like ran it home for me that like my satisfaction in writing isn't doing obstacles for obstacle sakes or like getting really technically good at something so that I can be technically good at it. I want to ride to experience the, like the wonderful world that we have available to us and um, experiencing nature and that kind of stuff and uh, being technically good at something and being able to do really, really gnarly routes for the sake of doing a gnarly route just isn't my jam. <laughs> you know, I wonder though, I'm sure some people do it just to do it, right? Like they, they're doing gnarly roots to do gnarly roots, but there's yeah. also the thought that 
if you over prepare and you can do things that you hope you'll never have to, then it makes all the other obstacles that you are more likely to run into pretty easy, right? To where it's like, if you can go up and down a ramp that like teeter totters, then, you know, you can go around a boulder or something and not mm -hmm. have to worry about uh, eating it. And totally. I, I guess I was, I interviewed a guy uh, who did a trip from, the DC area to Alaska and then from Alaska all the way down to Argentina mm -hmm. and like the different scenarios that he ran into along that trip. Um, I think that having good dirt skills was a benefit to him. And even with them, he still said he fell a bunch, mm -hmm. you know, so well, I guess I mean, it all like, depends on where you're planning on going. Yeah. But there's also people like Lois Price who like flew her bike from the UK to Alaska and rode all the way down to South America, did the Pan America with like zero experience. Oh yeah. It can definitely be done. Uh, but you know, for instance, like if you didn't want to be limited, uh, he went and drove up the side of a road to a volcano in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And I think it'd be hard. I mean, you could probably do it, right? Obviously you can, you can do anything if you have enough time and, and desire, um, mm -hmm. but having a little bit more skill would definitely make that a quicker process. Totally. And I'm like, I'm not downing, like, absolutely. If you have the, like the time and the money to do so, like improving your skills is always worth it. Um, but also I know a lot of people who obsess over it oh, and yeah. You spend way more time like going to these classes and like uh, practicing those skills over and over and over again until you can do it perfectly and then never getting out and doing the thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's why I like I'm, I'm also a big fan of ready, ready, fire, aim kind of mm -hmm. a concept where it's like you, you do a little bit of prep work and then you just do it and then you work it out as you go. You know, because if you get too obsessed with trying to be perfect before you start, then you may never start. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, I mean, I, I definitely see that perspective too. I'm just, uh, for the sake of argument's sake, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, talking yeah. about the, the whole training side of it, mostly because I'm kind of obsessed right now too, with, um, <laughs> like learning new skills. Cause I'm a brand new yeah. writer uh, yeah. and it's just something I'm interested in, I, I suppose. And then I, I guess I hear the, uh, the Moto Jitsu voice in my, in the back of my head where he's just like get out and practice get out and practice you know go take classes go take classes don't yes, die yeah. <laughs> yeah no totally uh yeah like I would, it would never be my intention to discourage people from learning or going to classes like i i am the first advocate for people taking like every like motorcycle safety course that they can before they like get out onto the street um, and I'm very, very grateful to have had a grandpa who wouldn't let me go get my license until I took the safety class because it's not required in Montana mm -hmm. um, to have the safety course before you get your endorsement. Um, and because like that class like reduced like so much of the fear that I had around the bike, like um, that would have got me into a lot of trouble. Um, so I'm like the first advocate for that, but um as far as like extra skills and that kind of stuff, I've always been a jump head in and see if I need to or not person. <laughs> Makes sense. Some people are naturals at things too, you know, or, you know, they're, they're natural enough that uh, it works for their purposes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it like just getting like a base uh, uh, baseline of like your expectations of, um, what a thing is and then um then evaluating if the money is worth it to invest in classes and that kind of stuff and like that like 
that's the way I was with art. Like I paid 30 grand to have a bachelor's degree in fine arts. And uh, not because I didn't think that I was good at drawing, but because I knew that I could learn more. Um, yeah. So. And as a person who went to school for accounting, I hear 30 grand on art degree and it's like, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, a lot of money. Um, yeah. But I definitely wouldn't go back and not do it either. So. I, you know, and it's funny that uh, I'm so, I see so much value in um, classes for motorcycles, but I'm kind of the opposite when it comes to jobs. I feel mm-hmm. like, Right now, college has become so expensive in so many different facets that mm-hmm. um, the amount of debt that you're loaded with doesn't seem worth it at this point for a lot of people, I think. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. everyone's going to get something different out of school, but yes, uh, I hear about people. Uh, for instance, I know a guy who went to private school to be a teacher, mm-hmm. and teachers have notoriously low salaries. And yeah. the school he went to was a private school, a liberal arts school, and it was super, super expensive. And the amount of debt that he came out with was staggering. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know when as a teacher he'll ever be able to pay that back, you know, but he loved his school. As a matter of fact, he's going back for his master's there and mm-hmm. <laughs> he loves his job. So at the end of the day, I mean, it's just money, but. Um. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just money. And trying to weigh the value of everything that you experience at school versus like 30 grand. Like I would easily price my education at PNCA at 75 grand. Like it was everything. Um, I mean, not everything, but um, like without that, like if I had done what a lot of people say to do now, which is just like go on Skillshare and like learn on Skillshare, do online courses and that kind of stuff. I would have missed out on all of the people that I met in art school, the um, support base that I now have as a result of us all going to art school together and bonding over that. Um, Like I get jobs from other people that I went to school with because they can't do it right now. And I give jobs to other people that I went to school with because I can't do them right now. Um, And I like the rate at which I improved, like in my art by itself was well worth the money and that span of time. I'm sure that I would have improved eventually, but not in the span of four years. Um, Just in the first year, I improved more than I had eight years of me trying to teach myself, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and all of the materials involved, like all the things that we were given by the school. um, I don't know. I, I know that like a lot of people don't have a great experience at college, but I also think that a lot of college is what you put into it, essentially. Um, if you are there to learn and you take advantage of all the resources available to you to like, that's the other thing, like college is like part of that fee is all of the resources and activities and things that they list there for you. And so many people who go to college like just party and get drunk all the time and they don't take advantage of all the resources that are available to them as a result of being college. Like I took a ton of like AP classes cause we get like two or three credits, um, free credits to take AP classes during the summer every single year. And I took those, um, I don't know. I think that I, I definitely got my money's worth out of my school. <laughs> That's good. Well, I and mean, then value is different, right? Than, um, yes. 
than price i mean yes people say the same thing about harley's like oh yeah why in the hell would you spend all that money on a harley you know it's like because to me the value is there it's not there for you which is understandable but uh, yes yeah because like like harley and and bmw and triumph all those brands are have are creating a culture um you're not just buying a motorcycle you're um that's not buying into sounds terrible but you are you're buying into a culture and a family mm-hmm. um that is already there for you um yeah well and if you're like me the things that you value about a motorcycle are different like everyone's got their own values right so for me yes. i wanted the very analog machine i, I enjoy that analog experience um and i want to eventually learn to work on bikes because one of the things that i am disappointed in in my own life is that i never really learned to do anything mechanical related Mm -hmm. and so i figure as soon as my uh, warranty is up on the bike then i'll start learning to do some of my own work on it and starting with a simpler machine um in my mind is is a better option than going with something with a lot of tech um, definitely where it's like now it's like not only do you have to worry about the mechanical side of it but then there's all these interconnected like technical things in there <laughs> and like I'm three like, computers i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah those other like i'm so glad that my first bike was a 30 year old bike like uh i can't imagine trying to f- f- like uh, I mean, like I can fix um, Brarios now, but trying to fix a 2016 bike when I first started learning about how like motorcycle engines work and that kind of stuff would have been so daunting. I mean, prying open a 30 year old bike when it's your only motorcycle was very daunting. But um, the fact that everything on Lazarus is very cut and dry, even the wiring harness is so easy, like like <laughs> because it's literally just like battery to lights battery to like starter solenoid you know like that the battery to um alternator that like to the rectifier and yeah. um it's very very cut and dry Like I like I'm one of those advocates that I'm like I think everybody should have a shitty old bike as their first bike because you're going to learn how that bike works because you're not going to have an option. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, uh, you know, if I didn't have such bad luck with um, used vehicles, I definitely yeah. was going to go with a really crappy bike. Um, yeah. But a couple things stopped me. Number one, it's so, ex- so expensive um, to get all the tools together sometimes. Yes. Like, uh, yeah. And I didn't, ha- I don't really have a bunch of tools. Mm-hmm. And if I'm already buying a bike, I didn't want to put out the money for the tools yet either. I'd rather spread mm-hmm. that out. You know what I mean? Pick up a little bit yeah. here, a little bit there. But also it gets really hot out in Phoenix. And <laughs> yes. I I don't have anywhere because I have a garage, but it's not air conditioned, you know? And so yeah. it's like 120 in there. And the <laughs> thought of needing to spend any length of time in the garage, uh, wrenching on a bike just didn't appeal to me as my first you know, experience with a motorcycle. So I was like, all right. Oh, oh, believe me, I've changed brakes uh, when it's 26 degrees in the snow in Montana. I know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, that sounds horrible. Now, were, they, were they brakes on a car or on a, on a motorcycle? Oh, brakes on my truck. Okay. Were Almost they drum or bad. disc? <laughs> were they a drum or disc or both? Uh, disc brakes, yeah. Okay. I... um. I learned a few years ago how to change brake pads on um, a, a Dodge Neon, and it had disc brakes in the front, drum brakes in the back. 
Oh God. And the guy teaching me how to do it um, didn't have the um, spring puller for the oh. drum brakes. And so we're trying oh. to use like um, uh, screwdrivers and stuff and like stretch out the springs to get this thing apart to get, the, it was just, uh, you know, I thought mechanics earn every penny that they yes. make because yes. i don't ever want to do this <laughs> yeah but the disc brakes were way easier and and i was like oh you know i could probably do disc brakes again but yeah. now with like abs and everything tied to them and, and stuff i yeah. feel like even brakes are getting more complicated to yes work on yeah i'm still grateful but my truck is a 2000 my dad's is a 2005 and gary's is a 2004 um they have a whole lot more electrical things to that break <laughs> yeah i mean they're gonna be transformers soon you yes. know what i mean yeah like at this point you're gonna need an electrical engineering degree you're not gonna need a mechanical engineering degree yes. to work on a bike. yeah definitely <laughs> and like it's it's already getting that way with motorcycles like uh a lot of the newer harleys because i spent a lot of time in the uh shop part when i worked at the dealership um and uh, before you do anything on a triumph or even like the newer newer harleys you have to plug them into the computer first like, uh, okay. especially like the newer Tigers, because their computer is very sensitive. Um, so you have to plug it into the computer first and you tell the computer that you're going to work on it. So the computer doesn't think that it's like exploding. <laughs> wow. Um, so did you, did you ever really get to do any mechanic jobs um, or did they really just kind of push you to the side? I mean, I know you said it, but I wasn't sure how much of it was, you know, exaggeration for effect because it's how it felt or. Um... I was a glorified bike cleaner. That that was literally my job. Um, so when I first got hired on, um, the, the collision center was separate from the dealership. So the, um, the tech, the service manager wasn't there all the time. So like he wasn't there like monitoring my every move. I had a different boss who was in charge of like the collision part of the like the dealership. Um, so he was in charge of like accepting insurance and filing those claims for people with like wrecked bikes and that kind of stuff. And then we would fix them. Um, and the only time that I got to work on a bike um, two times, I got to put the triumphs together when they came in from boxes, which essentially just putting the acid in the batteries and putting the battery into the bike. And then um, we got this like 86 street glide that like ran into a deer and it was carbureted. And the technician that they had working on those bikes, okay, this is part of the reason that I'm so frustrated. He was younger than me and he didn't know how a carburetor worked, but he was the tech working on all of these bikes. Wow. And for the most part, it wasn't a big deal. A lot of collision work is just ordering parts and bolting them back on, you know? Um, and th there isn't a whole lot of diagnosis involved. Um, you, they identify the parts that are broken, you put an X on it, you buy new parts that insurance pays for it. That's, that was the gist of our side of uh, the process. Um, so we got in this, when that bike came in and uh, he got all the new parts bolted on, but then the bike wouldn't run because he had to pull the carburetors off and in the process he fucked up the float bowls um and he oh my god it was like three weeks of me of torture for me watching him 
try to figure out how the carburetor worked. And then finally I couldn't stand it anymore. And I was like, just fuck more so I can fix it. Oh, look, the job got done in two days. Huh, who would have thought? <laughs> it's fine. Um, it definitely sounds frustrating. Oh my but, God. You know, kind of good for you for letting him suffer for a while. <laughs> you know what I mean? Rather than saving his bacon. And then let me ask you this. After that, did he advocate for you at all to start helping oh, no. all that stuff? No, that lack of appreciation is just insane for some people, you know, and like and like part of that was just like the culture around like dealership, like service shops and like and it's almost there's very few dealership like service areas that I have dealt with that aren't that weren't blatantly misogynistic. Um, And uh a lot of the texts in the back like were amazing to me and I, they would let me stand over them and they would like teach me as they were working on stuff. They had like an incredible amount of patience that a lot of texts don't have. Um, understandably, because like if you're working on a problem and it's frustrating, you don't want to have to explain what you're doing to somebody else. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but everybody in management. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, anyway, so when the collision shop got closed and moved to the main body of the dealership, then I wasn't allowed to be on the bikes like at all because the service manager was very strictly girls don't work on bikes. Um, and, uh, when I first got there and I went to the service manager and I asked him, um, like, what do I do? How do I become a tech for you? Like, this is why, why I applied for this job. Um, and he said, well, you, you need to like, you know, do all of the Harley online training and that kind of stuff. And then maybe we'll talk about it. And I was like, okay, cool. So I like would spend my free time doing the Harley trainings online. And, um, in the middle of that process, this kid, like 16 year old kid was shadowing one of my one of my favorite texts at the shop. And I was like, who's this kid? Like, is he your son or something? Your cousin? I don't know. And they're like, oh no, that's the new intern. And I was like, what? And I'm like, okay, so he did all the training. No, he didn't do any of the training. But since he was a boy, they decided, oh yeah, he's the new intern. We'll just have you shadow the tech and then you can start working on bikes. Wow. Um, and it was later down the road when the collision center got like moved back into the main shop and that kind of stuff like where like uh the service manager was just blatantly like i don't have girl techs in my shop girls don't work on bikes um yeah so did you ever move anywhere else than become a tech um where they would actually let you work on the bikes or did you just move on to different career path after that um so i just kind of got uh shortly after we got moved back to the collision center and like, like, of course, like the main dealership already had a lot tech. So they already had a glorified bike washer. They didn't need me. Um, and then I got moved up into events. So like, and I made pretty decent money doing events. So like didn't need, didn't have the need to, or like the urge to go find somewhere else to work. Um, because I did enjoy my work while I didn't always enjoy everybody that I had to work with. Um, I loved doing events. Um, and, uh, I got to make all the event posters there. So it was like a double whammy for me. I got to do events. I got paid to make art. 
like, um, and I didn't have to worry about pleasing a specific client. They essentially like let me draw whatever I wanted because <laughs> yeah. it worked on social media. So like <laughs> I must be doing something right. Um, uh, so no, I, I didn't try to go find somewhere else to be a tech at, um, I know that Motor Corsa in town is amazing and an advocate for female techs. They have a female tech there. Um, I think the other Harley Davidson dealership across town has a female tech now, which I think is hilarious. Um, and, uh, but the, like the Honda dealer is also not super. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then after the um, the marketing side and the events, um, where did you go? Is that how you ended up at REI or did you? Yes, that's how I ended up at REI. Yeah. Okay. So they let me go and um, they didn't really give me a reason uh, that I had been working on a, on a project, like the event for the weekend all day. On It was a Friday. And at the end of the day, they called me and they're like, you need to talk to me. Like, um, we're letting you go. You're being laid off. Um you have a right of refusal if and when we can afford to hire you back again. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. So like, how much time do I have to get all my stuff together? I was like, oh, you're leaving today. You have one hour to pack up your stuff. And I was like, wow. Uh, who's going to do the event that I just spent all day working on? You know, like I, I need to transfer all this stuff over. Like, nope. Um, and so it took me a while to get over it because I thought that I was going to be there forever. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I like as mu as much of the job that was frustrating and stressful. I loved it there. Um, and, uh, I was the longest events person that they've ever had. Like before me, like they were lucky if they could get somebody to stay for nine months and I was there for two years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was completely out left field for me. I was not expecting it at all. Um, and so it took me a while to get over. And then I finally started applying at jobs like two or three months later. And because uh, I that like I had been I kind of just whammy down on YouTube and uh, Patreon and illustration, that kind of stuff. And that kind of got me by for a while. And like, finally, my boyfriend is like, you need to get another job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like okay fine uh and that's how I ended up at REI and REI has been wonderful um so did you keep in touch with anyone from the dealership after you you left or did you pretty much uh, a couple people yeah like Carl um uh we had Carl's Mr. Rides together he's he's in a couple of my videos like he's in the Cabder videos and um like one or two videos before that and all the videos that I made for Carl's Mr. Ride are still on my channel as well um, and if you go to the Carl's mystery ride, like YouTube channel, I made all those videos up until like the last two, I think they put up was after I left. Um, and of course that quickly died after I left because I found out who was doing all the work. <laughs> so did you maybe in any back channels hear rumors about why was it just a money issue where they just had to make a cut somewhere or, um, um, part of it was because like the um, the general manager that was in charge at the time was doing everything he could to cut anybody who was making more than minimum wage. Oh. Um, the like kind of months leading up to it, like they had been the process of cutting a lot of people who had been there for a really long time. Um, 
like citing really weird reasons to get rid of somebody. Like there's this, there was this gal who was essentially like, um, was shop mom, essentially. Like she was, um, our quote unquote HR person. She wasn't officially because they got rid of our HR person. Um, but she took care of all of us and she made sure that like everybody's birthday got recognized and like making sure that like, if any of us had issues, like they were brought to the attention of managers when like, we didn't feel comfortable bringing it up, um, stuff like that. And, uh, she had been with the dealership for like 25, 28 years and they got rid of her. Wow. Um, claiming that like she started talking back to the general manager or something like that and it was more because she, since she'd been there so long she was making more than base wage because she had been given races over the years um same thing with me because i was making more than base wage because when they moved me from a lot tech to events man events coordinator they wanted me to work five to six days a week and i was cleaning houses on the side and doing youtube and doing illustration that kind of stuff and i was like i can't work full-time here and still do all my other stuff and so he said like well how much do we have to pay you to make it worth your time so you don't do those other jobs anymore and I gave him my number and he said, fine. And uh, evidently two years down the, the line, that wasn't fine anymore. Um, and so they got rid of me, they got rid of um, the gal and um, a couple of techs that had been there forever. Um, yeah. Hmm. And then ironically, that general manager left four months later. So then do you think that he was directed to make those cuts though? And that's maybe one of the reasons why he left or do you um, think that that was his own objective? And then he left because you had a brain drain now that you've fired everyone with experience. Uh, I think it was um, probably partially directed by the gal they had in charge of their finance department. Um, she was doing everything she could to cut all the fat essentially to make the business run leaner um, because like Harley's been having a hard time. All dealerships are having a hard time. Um, but uh, I don't think that's why he left. He left because he has a pattern of only working at a business for three to four years. And then he moves on to the next thing um, before he worked, before he was general manager at a Harley Davidson dealership, he had been like a serial manager for a bunch of used car dealerships. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. Wow. Well, it's it's tough to know what the motivation behind that is, right? Because um, to some degree, one strategy to make sure that your own salary is increasing is you stay two to three years per job. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you make a jump right after you get a raise so that you get like a double raise in one year if you negotiate, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And the other side, it's, you know, you can't keep everything together more than a couple of years before everything starts to fall apart. And you know, you need to get out before everyone discovers. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the, the feed feed for me down the grapevine was also because uh, the, not to be super gossip, this that sounds bad. Um, but the feed down the grapevine was like partially he had like come to his, like his pattern of getting ready to go and then he pissed off a, a bunch of the other managers and uh, it was revealed all of the shitty things he was doing to all of us. And uh, so I think that it was kind of a mutual, you should go now. And also, well, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. Yeah. <laughs>
that makes it rough, you know. Um, yeah. I, for, for me, people can make or break a job. Um, I mean, I've been at my current company for, geez, I don't know. I think I started there in 2006, 2007, and I'm still there now. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the reason I stay is the people have been great to work with. Yeah. Um, it's not like the pay is amazing. You know what I mean? It's a small company. Yeah. Or it was. We just got acquired by a gigantic company. But um, <laughs> prior prior to now, it's it's been a small company, so the the pay mm-hmm. wasn't fantastic or anything. But yeah, you know, the work atmosphere, having people who care, yes, makes a huge difference in your day. Yes, yeah, and I I I had made like a tiny family that was like you know like three people at late at the dealership that I um, genuinely always knew would have my back, and Carl was one of them. And, uh, one of them was one of the techs. And then one of them was the, um, the parts, part of the parts counter that only serves the shop side. Um, and I knew that if I was having a bad day, I could go and hide behind his desk and he would let me vent. And before I could went back up to my office, that kind of stuff. That's awesome. Um, and I miss those people a lot. Carl doesn't work there anymore. Carl has moved to North Carolina and I did manage to go see him on my big trip, but um, I will miss him. So I see you've been putting out some of the videos from your big trip now. Um, yeah. How many do you think it's going to be in the series? Um, I'm aiming for 10. Aiming for 10. Uh, okay. Yes. And I think so, like three is what you're out right now, four maybe? Uh, three will come out next Friday, this upcoming Friday. What is that, the 11th? Okay. I think the 11th, the next one comes out. We're at two right now. Um, and... I know that I like put out like what, like 20, 22 episodes or whatever for the pilgrimage, but I was on the road for like 70 days. Yeah. Um, uh, this was significantly shorter. I was after I got I, on the road for 24 days and I was only really traveling for 22 of those days. Thanks to my brother. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. That, that was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you talked about it in one of your interviews about one of the benefits of traveling alone is you don't get holed up by anyone. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a good thing you love him, right? <laughs> yes. It's definitely a good thing that I love him. I like, I would have enjoyed having him along for the rest of the trip if he would have been able to like work it out with his work. Um, because uh, my brother and I just like work very well together. It's like, it's kind of the same dynamic that I had with Carl, which is why I didn't mind writing with Carl is because like Carl and Gary are very go with the flow people. So at no point do I feel like I'm holding them up because they don't care. Like, and I'm like, I want to go see that thing. Okay, we'll go. It doesn't matter, you know? And it doesn't matter if I'm going to stop and play with my drone for an hour and and it's gonna make sure it's gonna make it so we get to the hotel in the dark that doesn't matter and that's why i enjoy writing with both of them so much um because they're very glow with the flow of people like uh maybe that says something about how controlling i am i don't know (laughs) well i i relate because i travel a lot alone too and um i I always feel like I am a go with the flow, relaxed kind of person until I'm traveling with someone. And I realize yes. I just want to do what I want to do. <laughs> yes. And it's like, you know, I, I tell myself, this is not just my trip, you know, like I'm here with yeah. someone, whatever. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's like you travel by yourself and you're yeah. able to make every one of those decisions. Like yeah. I want to, cause I love to walk cities. That's sort of been my yeah. thing for motorcycles. And yeah. 
it's like I have a kind of a list of things I want to do, but if I get yeah. distracted because I find like an alley or something I want to walk down and explore, then I do it and I don't I don't sweat yes. it, you know. So um yeah. what uh what do you think was the highlight of this trip, would you say? Do you have one or is the whole thing a highlight reel? Oh god. Um This is that's hard. Um, I think <laughs> my first highlight a was like getting to meet so many other women motovloggers. That was amazing. And uh, when I was making the route, uh, my boyfriend was laughing at me because he's like, "You're just doing a tour of motovloggers of the United States." Because like I just like pinpointed like all the motovloggers like where I knew where they were, and then I made my route around it. <laughs> like. <laughs> Um, I didn't obviously get to like time to meet all the ones that I had wanted to meet, but getting to meet, meet Whit Mesa and Megan Stark and her two wheels and doodle on a motorcycle was incredible. Um, and I'm just like, ugh. like, there's nothing compared to getting to actually sit down with somebody who identifies with you and can relate to all of the ups and downs of being a female creator in our niche. Um, it's amazing. Um, and like being a YouTuber is inherently lonely. Like we spend a lot of the time by ourselves. It's a lot of filming by yourself. It's a lot of editing by yourself and then putting that video up, um, and then dealing with all of the comments, uh, good and bad that come as a result. Um, and so whenever I get the opportunity to hang out with a YouTuber, um, just even YouTubers in general, it doesn't have to be in the motorcycle niche, like somebody who gets that workflow, who gets what's involved, um, all the technical aspects of it. It's incredible. Um, and like, and even more so like getting to meet other like motorcycle creators, like in our niche is just so cool. Um, and my, the next highlight that I would say, it's like how surprised I was by South Dakota. <laughs> um like the black hills was amazing and not just because i'm a huge 19th century nerd and deadwood is like disneyland to me mm -hmm. i swear to god i could spend a week in that town um but like uh custer state park was incredible the badlands was amazing although i will say um i think that i still prefer makoshka state park over the badlands and i know a lot of people will be upset with me about that but i don't care it's still a very similar natural feature. Um, you know, like what the Badlands is known for is like, like that, like epic, I don't even know what you would call that kind of, that geological feature where, anyway, um, same kind of scenery, maybe not on a massive scale as Badlands, but less people. And um, <laughs> um, less people and like it being right next to a town like that there's just i don't know it's it was more magical in my opinion um than badlands and there is more areas to get out of the sun as well in makoshka state park than there was in the badlands my brother and i got he, like almost had heat stroke um because we couldn't get out of the sun and uh of course we were there during the middle of the day like dum-dums <laughs> <laughs> it happens <laughs> I, uh, you know, I can kind of relate though, because I prefer the painted desert over the Grand Canyon and yeah. everyone thinks I'm insane 
you know, like how the Grand Canyon's the greatest. And I'm just like, I prefer the painted desert. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then my last highlight would probably be West Virginia, even though it's also like the worst part of the trip was worst part of the trip for me. Um, West Virginia was beautiful right again, like best campsite on the whole trip besides the one in Montana. And because uh, I like got to roll in, I got to set up my tent when it wasn't dark. First time on the whole trip that I got to set up my tent or like even roll into a place to stay before it was dark. Um, and I got to eat before it got dark. It was beautiful and serene. Um, and then the next morning it poured on me. It flooded my campsite. Uh, my gear epically failed. Oh. I was wet and miserable. It took me four hours to get into town because I couldn't go more than 25 miles per hour because my rear tire was bald. Ooh. going over West Virginia Hills in a downpour, um, which of course I later realized was like the leftover part of the tropical storm that went through. Um, so go figure. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I used to drive through West Virginia because when I lived in DC, uh, my ex-wife's family was from Quincy, Illinois, which is actually mm -hmm. where I used to live in Illinois as well. And you drive through West Virginia as you're going from DC to Illinois and one year we were going during the winter and um, it was snowing. And of course I love the snow as, as you know, and the lines, <laughs> <laughs> the lines to um, the, the windshield wiper fluid froze, you know, so we couldn't clear the snow and ice off of the windshield without stopping somewhere. And yeah. we were going through those mountains that you're talking about and there's <laughs> nowhere to stop without no. worrying about someone ramming you from behind. Yeah. Um, so it was the sketchiest ride back to <laughs> Illinois I think I've ever experienced. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My only worst experience in a, you know, commuting in, in a state is Tennessee. And oh, yeah. Uh, that one was just, I was going from California to DC uh, in via car, but I was waiting tables at the time. So every yeah. day that I didn't work, I didn't make any money mm -hmm. and I was broke, you know, so I was <laughs> yeah. trying to book it back to, uh, to DC and I did it in three and a half days and I would have done it quicker, but my, my parents offered to pay for gas if I would promise to stay in a hotel at least one night. Um, cause prior to that, I was just stopping at rest stops and sleeping in the car. Yeah. Uh, and by the time I got into Tennessee, I was going diagonally like tip to tip through Tennessee and there was construction. Yeah. I swear to God, from the minute I got into T D uh, Tennessee to the minute I left Tennessee and because <laughs> of the traffic, it put me in Nashville right at rush hour. Oh God. And I had the whole thing planned out so I would miss rush hour in Nashville. Oh. <laughs> and oh, all that construction was like, you tried, but you failed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Welcome I meant to, to go Nashville. to Nashville on that trip. I didn't manage to get there. Um, I did roll through Memphis and wow, um, not, no offense to anybody who lives in Memphis, but I have never seen so much trash on a sidewalk in my life go uh go to london <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i was shocked in some cities in europe um london and um glasgow uh glasgow or dublin one of the two where mm -hmm. i would i was going i told you i like to walk cities so i'm walking all these yeah. neighborhoods and people were just piling garbage places <laughs> 
you know how some houses have like uh, a lower level it might be a basement might just be kind yes. of built on a hill and there's that window that's that has like a hole drilled into the ground and then there's a window yes people were filling those with garbage <laughs> oh my god and I'm like the poor saps that have to use that window. Their entire view is just, oh my God. you know, a window full of garbage that people are just <laughs> too lazy to put in a garbage can. Um, which, like Crazy. many cities, there's garbage cans all over the place. So I didn't understand yeah. why people were just chucking it down these little window wells. Yeah. Anyway, that's neat. <laughs> but, uh, so now you've done what is it? Three or four trips now in the U.S. that are pretty long. Yeah. And one down to Baja. Mm -hmm. Do you have any plans on going outside the country further to do some trips like this? I um, I I still need to get to get, get to Canada. I feel silly for being a Montana and I never haven't been to Canada, um, right next to the border. Um, but uh, after Baja, it made me realize like just how much of the U.S. that I haven't seen. Cause like one of, like, I don't know if you would agree with me, but like one of the things that like I felt very inadequate about is like people would ask me about what it's like in the U S like, what is it like in your country? Or have you been to this place? And I'd be like, no, I haven't been there. Like I've been all over the West coast, but like, I really haven't got to explore like the whole of the United States. And um, so coming back from Baja, like I was like very much like any kind of like idea that I had about writing in, dif in different countries kind of went out the window because I'm like, I need to experience the country that we have at our fingertips right now first before I go out and like start doing all this other extra stuff. I don't know. That's that, that was my thought process anyway. Um, and uh, even like this trip was like really only like the beginning because I missed like the whole of like New England, like the Northeast um, and a lot of the South. Um, yeah, I still have a lot to experience before. Like, I think that uh, I don't know what that feeling is like the the urge to keep going further um, will push me into other areas. I think if you wanted to, you could spend a lifetime exploring the United States. There's just so yeah. much here, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I totally understand that. Every time I go somewhere new in the US, it's like, oh my God, how have I not been here before? How have I not done this before? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, because I grew up in a military family and I, I moved to like a, a few different countries and, and things like that, I also know what it's like um, to be somewhere. And, and I really enjoy being somewhere where um, I don't speak the language and I've really got to, um, I don't explain it. You really have to pay attention and work to, to do the things that you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, plus I, I enjoy meeting people with different views and, and yeah. um, seeing different uh, architectures and ways of life and, and things like that. And, um, you know, it's just, I guess it's just a passion of mine, you know, the mm -hmm. same way some people have, you know, the passion to do dirt biking or whatever else yeah um, but yeah i think my goal next is to try to get out to norway there are some yeah. roads out in norway that i was seeing that i think would be just fantastic to ride a motorcycle on yeah i mean like i really like and people have asked me in q a's before like if money was no option like no obstacle i'd be like well i want to ride through china and i really want to see mongolia like those are top top on my list i also really want to experience japan but i'm not sure that i would ride through japan <laughs> japan's been my favorite trip 
of my life so far. <laughs> uh, yeah, it checks so many boxes for me. So yeah, I think if you get an opportunity, even if you don't ride out there, I, I would yeah. highly suggest a trip to Japan, <laughs> especially if you love art. Yes. I mean, yeah. oh my God, like you wouldn't think a garden could be art. Oh no, until you it absolutely see the is. Way the Japanese <laughs> do gardens. It is just mind blowing sometimes the attention to detail that you can with a living thing i mean plants are yeah. living things and they oh anyway yes no totally and um the, my boyfriend's uh, mother is a, a landscape designer ah. and she oh my god she does incredible things with people's backyards like, like i would not think yeah anyway agreed landscape <laughs> is art <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think, uh, let's see, I've kept you here over two hours at this point. Um, <laughs> have you gotten through your question list though? I know that we I kind have, of detoured a little bit. <laughs> I have so much I could keep asking you. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, one of the things that I was curious about, and maybe we'll just go this direction. You just tell me when you're tired of talking to me. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> who... When I was reading about you, I was, you know, you'd mentioned uh, your older brother was teaching you art and mm -hmm. um, your grandfather got you into motorcycles. I'm wondering who do you think in your life had the biggest influence on you in general? My grandmother. Your grandmother? Mm -hmm. And why? What, did, what was her influence on you? Like, what did you learn from her? She was my role model. She was my caretaker. She was the woman who told me I could do anything if I wanted to. Um, we'll see if I can talk about this and not cry. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, she's my uh, paternal grandmother. So she's, she's my dad's mom. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my dad was always working on the ranch and my mom was always like working the day job. She was our breadwinner. So she worked a lot. And when she came home, she had a lot of migraines because she was very stressed like all the time. So my grandmother is the one who picked me up from school. I hung out with my grandmother. Like she was my best friend. She was my caretaker. Like she is the one who inspired me to love travel. Um, like ever like ever since I was little like we would do family trips and that kind of stuff but they were all instigated by my grandma like every summer we would go to Flathead Lake as a family in a motorhome and um but also when I was like in third grade like we did a big loop of Montana like in a car um and she has been all like all over the world she had been all over the world um and uh, like had all these like magnets from all the places that she went to and um, instilled in me that like, you can't wait until one day you have to do it now or it's not gonna happen. Um, and always, always, always like, and like my dad did this for me too. Like my mom did it for me too. Like trying to instill in me, like anything a boy can do, you can do too. Like, just because like so much of like rural Montana culture is very traditional um, and the sense that like, and, and roles and that kind of stuff. Um, unless you're a ranch kid, in which case everybody does the work, doesn't matter who you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but like my grandmother really, and I think that part of that was like uh, uh, inspired by uh, her, 
experience with her first husband really being rooted into the role as the housekeeper and the housewife taking care of the kids and that kind of stuff. Um, and it wasn't until she like married her second husband that she really got to blossom as a person. And I think that part of her experience in life like that is the reason that she worked so hard to make sure that, <sighs> sorry. Mm-hmm. That she worked so hard to make sure that I knew that if I put my mind to something that I could do it. Well, she her passed away in, two, in 2011, so. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Ugh. Well, just know, I mean, she's indirectly inspired so many people because I know so many people who mention your name um, when I talk to them about, you know, who they look up to when it comes to writing. So, I mean, your grandmother's legacy is growing every year. You know? <laughs> so... Oh, sorry. Oh, it's, it's understandable. I mean, you, you cared about her, right? She did a lot for you. So I mean, it, it would be weird if you didn't get emotional for someone <laughs> who had such an impact on your life. <laughs> I wonder if you're one of the uh, like upgraded humans and you're like a robot or something, you know, <laughs> like the new bikes have all the electronics. <laughs> but like, also like I owe so much to Gary, um, for everything that he, he like did to inspire me with art and that kind of stuff. Like I would not be where I am if he hadn't like taught me what he knew when he was coming home from school and that kind of stuff. And, um, and my grandpa just, you know, for telling a little girl, I was like six when he told me I could have that bike. I was so young. Um, and, uh, and then coming to and live with him, living with him and he's like, yeah, that bike is still there. Like, you know, um, and like uh, encouraging me to go take the safety course and encourage me to work on the carbs myself, um, that kind of stuff. Like my grandpa is very much like a time is money kind of person. And if you don't have the money, I guess you're going to spend the time. Yep. Um, so like without him there to push me and that kind of stuff, like I would not have gotten into working on bikes at all. Like <laughs> it was like a, a result of being poor and having a, old bike <laughs> mm-hmm. necessity is a mother invention as they say yes <laughs> <laughs> and then like you know like my parents are incredible humans like um they had like without them obviously like rocky mountain rolls wouldn't still be happening um because i would have stopped like um and my dad is like i'm so grateful to have such an incredible father like Anytime any one of us kids needs help, he drops whatever he's doing and he is right there and he will sell everything that he owns to make sure that we have what we need. And uh, he's so cool. Just. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a great dad, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> because your kids are adults doesn't mean that they're not your kids anymore. You know, yes. So. Like when I broke down on the cab door, I was like, Yuma, Arizona, like just north of Yuma, Blythe, Blythe. That's where we were. Oh, okay. Um, and my dad was like, well, I can get down there and like, I can get, I can be there in about 12 hours and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, dad, it's going to cost him my money for you to come down here and gas. This is going to be for me to replace my clutch. Like, I'm just going to go 
replace my clutch. It'll be fine. Like, (laughs) and when I did the pilgrimage, like every time I broke down, my dad was like, well, I can be there in like, you know, how many hours when we can come and get you and it'll be okay. And I was like, it'll it'll be fine. I need to do this. It'll be okay. But, um, like going to art school, I also got to hear about a lot of other families that were not so awesome. So it just makes me even more grateful to have parents that are incredibly supportive. Well, it sounds like you had someone there um, to be the example and to expi- inspire you, right? And encourage you uh, on one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got someone there who's telling you over and over that they're your safety net, you know? So yeah. <laughs> you're kind of, you got this sweet spot where you're getting the inspiration and the push to try things. And then you get the other person filling in on the role as safety net. Like, yeah. Do, do, you know, follow what this person's telling you because I'm going to be there to help pick up the pieces if anything goes wrong. I mean, that really sounds like a strong family support system. I mean, you really couldn't ask for anything more, right? At that yeah, point. Like, <laughs> if I had to put together my dream team of situations in life for myself, like, I don't know what else I could ask for. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, support and inspiration and then you know support and a safety net that's just yes yeah, yeah that's awesome. I mean I can't leave out my other grandmother she's incredible um like the only reason I have a computer or my phone or even like my tattoo machines when I started tattooing was because like my other grandmother made that happen um so yeah I'm just incredibly lucky as you know <laughs> yeah no it's it, honestly you know it's it's uh, it's the truth because like you said there's not a lot of people have that, yeah. and, uh, you know, just like you probably didn't realize your, you know, um, the situation regarding your guys's wealth or not, or lack thereof until you yeah. went and interacted with other people, you may not have even fully appreciated all the, um, the support and inspiration you were getting at home until you meet people who yeah. have the complete opposite, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, like, Oh, you can't do that. You know, you're a girl and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I hear way too many of those stories, to be honest, uh, in my yeah. own personal life. Yeah, I'm not like saying that mom and dad were thrilled when I picked up the motorcycle, but they also didn't tell me I couldn't. Like, <laughs> Well, and they, they probably weren't telling you you couldn't because you were a girl, but more that they were just yeah. concerned about your safety, right? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Which is a yeah, whole like, animal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, my like my mom's mom. So my other grandmother, the one that's still alive, like when uh, my parents told them I was going to go across the country, like, like she came to Rocky Mountain Roll. She normally comes to Rocky Mountain Roll to like say hi to everybody as they roll in. Um, and she sat me down. She's like, we have to talk. And I was like, oh, God, you're taking away my phone. Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> and um, she's like, you know, like, it's different over there. You know, people over there aren't like over here. Like she was so freaked out like that I was going to get hurt or that something terrible was going to happen to me. And it was, it was adorable. And like, and there's still like, she wasn't telling me that I couldn't do it. She was just saying that she was genuinely concerned for my safety mm-hmm. um, and to make sure that I like was doing everything I could do to be safe. Um, which is like part of the reason, like I didn't post where I was like the whole time I was on the trip. Like, I know a lot of people are really upset that like I'm posting photos after I'm back, but like part of that is just safety, you know, like, um, the people that I stayed with knew where I was obviously, but like, uh, they were really good about like posting about where I was like after I wasn't there anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, 
Well, I mean, complacency kills, they say, uh, yeah. motorcycles, right? But yeah. the same thing is true in life. I mean, you have to take some prudent precautions for your own personal safety. You can't trust that everyone's going to be good, even though yeah. I fully believe most people are. Yes, definitely. That doesn't mean and that there's, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if anything is going to like put your faith in humanity again, it's a motorcycle trip, like long distance, um, for sure. Uh but at the same time, like faith in humanity in person is different than faith in humanity on the internet. <laughs> definitely. definitely. <laughs> well, you definitely got some good advice then from your, or good encouragement to yeah. pursue safety as a priority instead of, you know, an afterthought like some people yeah. do. And then, you know, there's no medicine for regret, they say. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. <laughs> much easier to apologize to people about not putting up a photo yes exactly and like planning this trip was so much different than playing the pilgrimage because when i was on the pilgrimage i think like i had like 600 followers on instagram knew nobody who knew i was there like 20 subscribers on youtube like i think on average if you like scroll all the way back to that section of my instagram there's like maybe 100 likes per post and it's different now a lot more people are watching what i'm doing um, and, uh, and while I know that the majority of my audiences inc- are incredible, like I am so lucky to have an incredible audience that is very supportive. And, um, I, I feel like when I go from my comment section to like the comment section of other female creators on YouTube, I feel incredibly lucky. Um, I don't get near the amount of hate and just like atrocious comments that other people get, um, so in that sense, like, I'm so grateful, um, but I'm also hyper aware that, like, a lot of the pe- those people, like, even though their intentions are good, may not understand that they're putting me in an uncomfortable situation or something. Um, so uh, I was hyper aware that I was going to have to go about this trip a little bit different than I did the pilgrimage and um, that, yeah, not posting where I was when I was there was part of it. Uh, yeah. What, um, of the trips that you've taken so far, what do you think has been the most meaningful trip? The pilgrimage. Okay. Was it because it was one of your first on your own or was it because it was sort of a celebration of accomplishment or why, why was that one the most meaningful? Um, so I started writing in 2012 and like all the trips I did like were by myself. I didn't ride with anybody. I didn't even know other people who rode until after I'd been riding for a good year and a half. Um, uh, I had like no idea about like this huge culture around motorcycling. I didn't, had no idea. Um, I think I joined the Torque Wenches like uh, 2014, 2013, something like that. Um, I had already been riding for a while before like I started like getting into like the whole motorcycle community as a whole. Um, and the pilgrimage is important to me because I was in a like um, abusive situation, like abusive mentor, um, who essentially had convinced me for three years that I was a piece of shit and that I wasn't worth anything. Um, wow. And so, so much of that trip and the reason that it like started just as a loop of, of Montana, I didn't even intend to go down to Utah and then go back up that kind of got added on as a last minute thing because I kind of posted as a joke, Hey, does anybody want to buy me a ticket to motos in Moab? Because I wasn't going to spend $70 on a ticket to an event. 
And one of the people, the very few people who were following my blog at the time bought my ticket for me. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Guess I didn't going. think this was going to, okay, we're going now. Um, my intention was just to like go over to Montana and then the whole, like do the whole loop. Um, and part of that was just, like getting back to my roots, back to the place, like, at, like I said, like where things felt possible. Um, and, uh, try to reground myself and figure out who I was again, because like, I totally lost like my lust for life, essentially. Like I wouldn't eat more than once a day because I didn't want to eat. And, um, like a lot of really dark thoughts and didn't want to exist anymore when I worked at the tattoo shop, um, because, uh, my mentor did such a good job. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, let me ask you how how did she get so much influence over you do you think um that you would internalize the negativity that she was throwing your way so much um a lot of it had to do with like she was my only social interaction in the summertime a lot um i would go i was living with my grandpa at the time and so like i would go from my room to the shop and we weren't a busy shop. So I, if I was lucky, we would get in a walk-in like maybe twice a week. Um, but I was spending every single day there in the summertime. Um, and uh, so it was just her. And like, I think uh, one other tattoo artist in the shop, he didn't really talk a whole lot. So I didn't have a whole lot of interaction with him. Um, and then there was kind of a revolving door of other artists who were guest spotting there. And um, they had a varying range of opinions about how uh summer or the my mentor was treating me um some thought that that she wasn't treating me harsh enough and some thought that it was outrageous the way she was treating me um and part of that is just like tattoo culture because like um if you don't go the school route um and you do the traditional being an apprentice for somebody a lot of the culture in tattoo shops is that you are the shop dog and you do absolutely anything anybody asks you to do the whole time you're an apprentice. And that is how you build character. And that's how you learn how to work. Um, and that is a very cyclical culture. Um, because if you were treated like crap when you were an apprentice, of course you're going to treat your apprentice like crap. Um, cause you think it's justified. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have always had very like healthy, um, I wouldn't say fear of uh, authority, but like a very healthy, like uh, you are older and wiser than me. And, um, uh, and especially uh, her being my mentor, I'm like taking everything that she says is gospel because like, I want to learn, I want to get better. Um, and I guess you could say that's a character flaw. I don't know. Um, but like, obviously, like it never backfired me on me in Montana. Like I always treated all of my elders with respect and always knew that they had something that I didn't know that I could learn from. Um, whether they always had the same opinions as me or not, that didn't matter. Um, so I going into like jobs with that kind of mentality, like, uh, wasn't super beneficial to me. 
Yeah. <laughs> Did you um, talk to anyone though, um, like your brother, your grandma, your dad, anyone like your grandfather who you were living with about the situation to sort of get some outside perspective on um, what was happening? Because it sounds like you're surrounded with people with really great heads on their shoulders. Yeah. And you have a great head on your shoulders. So it seems, <laughs> I'm just, I guess it's so hard to um, reconcile like this vile person was able to have such an influence over you you know yeah well, i mean like i I, def- I called my parents like at least twice a week um yeah. crying because i was very upset um and most of the time like the side that they were experienced was just like the side where like i was directly responding to something stupid that she did mm-hmm. and um i was just angry first and that's normally my response i'm angry first and then i get really sad yeah. <laughs> um and so most like i'm not sure that they even knew how much of a in a dark place that i was in um, I knew, I know that they knew that I wasn't like being treated right. And like that I was frustrated all the time. Um, but I don't think they knew like mentally it, in what kind of a dark place I was like the majority of the time that I like wasn't at work. Um, and, uh, otherwise I'm sure like they would have done their best to like get me out of that kind of situation. But also we are all incredibly stubborn and I was going to stick out my apprenticeship because I said that I was going to, um, and I did. <laughs> uh, but the unfortunate all... part seems like seems to be that you didn't then pursue tattooing on your own <laughs> afterwards. So it seems almost like you 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 accomplished your goal, but then yeah. the re- the real goal should have been to um, use all that experience and knowledge to you know help you live right, like make some mm-hmm. money and do something you enjoy, where you can interact with people uh, on your own terms and mm-hmm. over art. Um, yeah it sounds like on paper it sounds like it'd be an ideal job for you <laughs> yeah on, right? on paper yeah on paper because <laughs> again you're getting paid for art and you can book as many or as few appointments as you want so if you're yeah. having in you know one of those days where you don't want to interact with people it's like okay then you don't and then yeah when you yeah the need, main then. obstacle to tattooing after i quit was um uh i i did my apprenticeship in washington and uh, three years instead of the standard four because I already knew how to draw, or at least that was the excuse she gave me that she cut it down to three instead of four because um, she didn't have to teach me how to draw. Instead, I drew all of her tattoos. Anyway, that's besides the point. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so I was tattooing in Washington. I didn't have my license until the last year um, because she said that it was fine because I was tattooing on her license. It's not fine. Mm. I was supposed to have a license from the beginning. Um, and I don't know if she did this directly because she knew it would be impossible for me to find work in another shop or um, if it's just because uh, maybe she got a notification that she was going to get an OSHA violation if I didn't get my license. I don't know. Um, but I only had a license in, in Washington for one year. And uh, in Oregon, in order to tattoo in Oregon, you have to have evidence that you were licensed in a different state for four years and evidence that you pay taxes on that income as a tattoo artist for that amount of time. So I wasn't even close to that. Or you have to go to an Oregon tattoo school, which is eight grand, was eight grand. It's much more now. It's like an eight to 16 week program. 
Oh and gosh. I wasn't going to pay a grand to learn something that I already knew how to do. Um, so then the other option left to me was like, try to get licensed in Montana and then like try to find a shop that would let me guest spot like every month or something. Um, but, uh, that just like ended up one kind of like working out the amount of money that it would take for me to get to Montana to be able to tattoo enough to make enough money to pay taxes on that income in Montana to have evidence for four years to get licensed in Oregon. It's like not worth it. <laughs> or you could move to Montana permanently. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's like, that's still a possibility. Like if, if, and when like we end up in Montana to like, I'll pick up tattooing again there. Cause I still have all my equipment and like, I practice every great once in a while, like on the, the sheets of fake skin and that kind of stuff. And I do, genuinely and love tattooing um like uh, it's, it's so cool well and i was reading <laughs> that it, it actually influenced your your art in other mediums too right like yeah. thinking about the way the colors um didn't uh, blend as much yeah. as they kind of faded right from like one yes. color to the next yeah. and um yeah i mean like i said reading about it i thought that would be a like one of the perfect professions for you, you know? Yeah. But again, this, this is another aspect where I say, you know, the internet and social media can make it feel like, you know, someone better than you do. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, I've been interacting with you for a long time. <laughs> and the reality is like, no, you, you're only seeing what's put out there. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's I will say that like, it's kind of cool. I know that like a lot of people think it's weird, but I think it's cool to like meet people who have been like interacting with my content for a long time in person because it reduces like the amount of awkwardness that I feel because I don't have to explain to you all of my beliefs and what I think and what I've been through because you already know. So I get to spend all the time listening to your stories and it's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the flip side and the danger is that then people like me make, make um, you know, guesses about things like yeah. we start to fill in our own blanks because that's what the brain does right the brain yeah, fills totally. in blanks uh, it's what it does all day long and, and <laughs> enough information then you start to be like well i know that amanda zitta would do this and say this and <laughs> uh, meanwhile i could be 100 percent wrong and so can everyone else and, <laughs> well let's see I think, I think for the most part like i think everybody knows the important things you know well, yeah. I mean, you, every creature or every every human, I feel like, talks about the things that are the most important to them the most often, you know, yeah. and especially with new people. So every yeah. time you're having an interview or, you know, someone's writing an article or something and they're asking yeah. you for the important things, you would yeah. think, in, unless you're schizophrenic or something, not, not to say there's anything wrong <laughs> yes. with that. I mean, it's pretty yes. right? But uh, you'd expect some sort of consistency in the in the answer, so. Yeah through your tattoos i mean we didn't really touch on your bikes that much but i feel like you <laughs> talked about them a lot um so or at least than, at least briarios and lazarus and you yeah know, they're the stars of the show so so i guess as as an update in um or an exercise in in just fantasy what do you think your your next bike will be um part of me would say a dirt bike because I don't have a dirt bike and that's really the biggest hole in my collection because <laughs> 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 that's what it is at this point yeah right um 
uh yeah i feel like that's the biggest hole in my collection is that i don't have a dirt bike um and it would be so fun just to have a dirt bike to rip around on our property because of that like that gnarly um ravine that goes down the middle i did try to take briarios down it um when i first got him because i was like oh yeah i have a bike that has a suspension it can do all this shit i got thoroughly stuck it took me two hours to get myself out um uh, just because of the steepness um and everything is covered in like uh pine needles so it's slick as hell um <laughs> but like i'm like oh yeah i had a little dirt bike like a 250 or something that would be super fun um i really really love huskies uh i got the opportunity to, to ride somebody's husky like 250 and then like a ktm and i know they're made by the same company now but the huskies power delivery felt so much smoother <laughs> <laughs> so you have to remember, I've only been riding motorcycles uh, since April. So when you say Husky, okay. are you talking about Husqvarna's? Husqvarna, yeah. Okay, okay. I didn't yes. know the nickname was Husky, so. Yes, the 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 joke is that they're white KTMs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've been seeing some motorcycle content recently by like um, Yammy Noob or whatever talking about yeah. how it's like, this is basically the same bike, but it's got different it's, branding. <laughs> yes, it's different branding. I think the the um, the way that they tune the engine is different on the Huskies than it is on the KTM's. And KTM's are really like designed for like raw power delivery, or at least that's the way that I would describe it. Um, and so they're really really great for like like riders that are trying to push their bike to like the absolute like max that it can go. Um, of course, this is all my personal opinion. Um, and like Huskies, like, or at least the ones that I've gotten to ride, like in comparison to the ones that I like of the KTMs that I've gotten to ride, like, I feel like Huskies are like, you still get that like beautiful performance, but the delivery is much smoother and a little bit tamer. (laughs) One might even say refined. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, um, before I, I let you go, I actually, there are a couple of things that I'd meant to ask you and I completely forgot because we've totally. just been chatting and chatting. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, one of the things I like to ask women who ride is whether or not they think there's a role for motorcycle manufacturers to play in encouraging women to ride. And if there is, what do you think they can do um, to move that along trying to ask me the question that i was trying to answer the whole time i worked at the dealership there (laughs) (laughs) um i i think marketing is such a huge thing and a lot of uh, brands are doing their best to try to transition and create more marketing that does have female representation and i appreciate that but we have a long way to go and um i think part of that is also um also the responsibility of gear manufacturers um creating more gear for women and um i don't mean just like gear for girls and i and gear for skinny girls which is what a lot of the market is filling right now which is awesome because there are a lot of like female writers that are petite and they need gear that fits them too um but there's also a huge gap in the market for gear that fits women who are not petite. And I am one of them. And uh, I feel that a lot. (laughs) Anytime that I'm trying to find new gear, 
um, I did just dump a ton of money on a, a Revit suit and I'm just crossing my fingers and hoping that like, you know, the like Revit's whole representation is that their women's gear is designed by women for women. So I'm hoping it lives up the expectations because it was a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like after my scorpion suit, like totally epically failed in that downpour in West Virginia, I was like, I need something else. <laughs> I would like to never be wet and miserable again. Thank you. I love my Aristich suit. My Aristich suit is incredible. Definitely waterproof. So heavy. Oh, oh my God. So heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect for long trips. Oh yeah. Like, and I've, I've expressed this kind of, like this opinion to other people who own arrow stitch suits and they're like, what do you mean? And of course, most of those people are men. Um, and I, I don't know if it's just me or it's just the way that the armor sits on me, the, the arrow stitch road crafter suit, which is like the full body suit. It comes with its own armor and that armor is thick. It is not lightweight. <laughs> it is not D3O by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, uh, like the shoulder armor just sits in such a way that the weight of the whole rest of the suit, even with the uh, waist cinched down as much as I can get it, gives me bruises on my shoulders after the second day. Wow. Um, so <laughs> I kind of stopped using it for long distance trips. Um, it's still like a great like day suit. Like I use it in the wintertime in Portland because I can layer as much as I want underneath of it and stay warm. And then I know that the whole suit's going to keep me dry. Mm -hmm. um, I have been through, oh my God, so many torrential downpours in that suit and always been dry. So I have complete faith in it, but um, not great for long distance touring and not super great in the heat. Um, there isn't a whole lot of ventilation. Um, yeah. So that, that keeps me looking for the perfect suit that I don't have to put rain gear over top of um that will be my three season suit you know it's okay if it doesn't cover me in like the dead of winter that is all right um that's what i have the air stitch for but uh getting at least through the summer months and went like spring and fall when i know i'm gonna get wet um i'm still looking for it so i'm knocking on wood that this rabbit suit is gonna be it <laughs> yeah i hope so too um, um Sorry, I detoured from the question. No, no, um, I mean, you're basically there. We, you kind of, you answered it by default because the first part of the question was, do you think there even really is a role for, like, do you think it's their responsibility and in, to encourage more women to ride? You know, is there a role for them to do that? And then if so, how? And it sounds like yeah. de facto yeah. with the rest of your answer, the answer is yes, yeah. they, they should be encouraging more women to ride. And yes. representation seems to be the um, vehicle that you... Uh, think is going to be the most effective um, yeah but, i mean like that's that's my perspective of course i, I know that like uh, everybody else has their own opinion but i feel like so much of of like culture and community is being able to see yourself in the media that you're consuming um and if you are interested in writing and you go and you look up like you know like motorcycle just genre stuff in general not even just like how to ride um the vast majority of things that you're going to be flooded with first is going to be male dominated. Um, and so if you're a female writer and you're like, Oh, I want to learn to ride and less the media that you start consuming because you're going to like, you're interested, not necessarily like the like uh, technical aspect stuff, not necessarily like learning to ride that kind of stuff. If you're just like interested in the thing first, you kind of like dive into the surface level of the thing and the surface level of the motorcycle community right now is very male dominated. 
Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't female creators like me and Megan and her two wheels and Jocelyn Snow and incredible other women, like women who ride Elspeth Beard, like Lois Price. I could go on all day. I have a video dedicated to all the like incredible women who inspired me to ride like Moto Lady and uh, on her bike. Um, but it does take a minute to dig to find us. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, luckily um, for future women who want to ride, you guys in particular are really good at social media marketing. So yes. it's getting less and less difficult to find you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, your search terms don't have to be perfect and you will come yeah. up with some women who, who ride and are doing yeah. the thing as you like to say. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I think that like, uh, uh, just including more representation of female writers, like in their marketing budgets and as a whole, um, including their marketing budget for TV and film. Um, because like a lot of like the major brands will give bikes to, um, Hollywood to put in their movie and that kind of stuff and, um, picking more movies that have like female leads or that kind of stuff and um, putting them on your bike, you know, that it goes a long way. It sounds super superficial, but it goes a long way. Well, I think that it's, you know, so much of culture is a bunch of little tiny things adding up, right? Mm -hmm. And one of those elements is what you see in TV, what you see in movies, what you mm -hmm. see in magazines, what you read in books, even, you yes. know, like, are the characters in your books riding motorcycles? Yes. And women? <laughs> like, yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's like, is any one of those things super important? Maybe not. But when you look at all of them together, you know, it's, it's like some, you know, if one person tells you um, you're too short, right. For yeah. something, yeah, whatever, who cares? But if everyone yeah. you walk by is like, Oh, you're too short. You're too short. You're too short. Yes. Eventually you're going to get a com complex, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And like, and genuine representation of female riders. I don't just mean like bikini models on bikes. Um, yeah. And uh, the race industry is more guilty of that than anything, but uh, I asked someone once because they were talking about the um, the bike wash girls at Harley. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, you know, instead of getting rid of the bike wash girls at Harley, would it be acceptable to add bike wash dudes at Harley? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, because it's, still... <laughs> it's kind of still on brand, right? It's like the yeah. eye candy for everyone, though, at that point. And <laughs> at that point, you're also being inclusive while also objectifying, you know, but... <laughs> I mean, like in an ideal world, we wouldn't objectify people, but obviously that's a part of marketing because sex sells. Um, yeah. And but, to, to some yeah. degree, I think that uh, the objectification of people, and this is going off on a tangent, uh, I suppose, but uh, is partially dependent on choice, I guess. Yes. You know, it's like if the people are participating by choice and not by necessity, where it's like, if you yeah. didn't, if you want to model, you have to do this, you know, that's yeah. not a choice. Right. Yeah. But if there's a million different choices for pursuing your modeling career yeah. and, and one of them happens to be a bikini bike wash girl and you're like, yeah. I like washing motorcycles and wearing bikini. <laughs> I want to go do that. You know, like that's yeah. different in my mind. Absolutely. I guess. That's that's empowerment. That's not objectification. Yeah. Well, depending on, yeah, the viewer is still on objectifying your perspective, you. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's a lot to go into in a motorcycle. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, it's, yeah, 
I think. Yeah, because it's different. It's different to have to show skin to get views versus like showing skin because you are in in, like in charge of your body. It's a different perspective. Because one area I I know that I kind of get a little a little bit concerned with sometimes is people complain about you know sexy women on bikes, and the implication is always that if you're sexy on a bike that you don't actually, like you're not a genuine biker, you know? And it's like, (laughs) there are a lot of women who enjoy both being sexy and genuinely enjoy riding motorcycles and to kind of lump all the, you know, sexy riders into one category uh, to me is a little bit, little, little overboard, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I think women shouldn't have to compromise. Like if you like being, good looking uh in yeah. every facet of your life like chic riot for instance i really like chic riot yeah. because yes you know tabitha wanted riding gear that let her still be feminine and pretty mm-hmm. while also being safe and so she went out and developed it um, yeah because there is a role for people who want to look good they don't just want to be safe right some people only care about being safe it's like i don't make sure the gear fits and it's safe i'll wear it yeah. Yes. And then yeah. some people are like, well, I also want to look pretty. So where's my pretty gear? <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's just as valid to me as someone who's like, you know, gear should be functional and fit right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the problem is like finding gear that fits right in the first place. Well, um, exactly. <laughs> and I hear that no, a lot. I think everything that she does is so cool and innovative and you, you don't see other gear like that. And a lot of other like brands that have popped up trying to fill like the gap in like female writing gear is just like a mega copy, mega copy of like stuff that's already available commercially. You just took the pink off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I just found out about Stellar, Stellar, or yeah, Stellar Motor Brand oh, too. Yeah. And yeah. um, I think they've got some really cool stuff um, yeah. out there as well. And I think the, like you said, like the stuff is out there sometimes you just have to really look and it's surprisingly yes. difficult to find. And it shouldn't be that way, especially if you're a big giant company like Biltwell or uh, any of the other major manufacturers, like if you want to sell stuff, shouldn't you make sure that it's easy for people to find it? <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> And then if someone doesn't buy it, you're like, oh, well, this doesn't work. So we're going to stop making it. And it's like, no, you didn't put in any effort. Of course, no one yeah. bought it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Atwild is doing a decent job of their marketing. But like Atwild is also owned by the ladies who do Babes Right Out. And they have obviously figured out like the jam. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I know um, I interviewed um, a woman from She-Wolf Moto Co. And she's not into safety gear yet. She's still on more, um, you know, just fun motorcycle related clothing for women. And uh, she wants to get into safety gear, but it's a really, you know, I mean, there's a lot to take into account. Yeah, it's it's really difficult to get off the ground if you don't have a lot of capital to start off with. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's so many safety considerations too, you know, like mm-hmm. learning about the different type of stitching and the materials and the, it's just on and on. I'm, I'm amazed more every day about how Tabitha and, and um, kid went about getting that company off the ground you totally. know, and doing such a good job with it. So, yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, yeah, there, there's so much like technical aspects to like riding gear that like we don't think about. And especially like, 
uh, newer writers who think like leather is the only way to go. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was there too. Like I, like I did the leather and like the, the weirdly sized leather jacket because it's the only one I could get. So it was too short in the torso for me mm-hmm. and uh, chaps. <laughs> like, <laughs> Do you have pictures of you in a leather jacket and chaps? Cause that would be yes. really fun. I think anyone looks funny in leather jackets <laughs> and chaps. Like, I don't understand how that ever became popular, to be honest. Yes. You know? Well, like Chaps was just an adaptation of what the Cowboys were already wearing. (laughs) Yeah, but (laughs) still, I just, I don't know. I I just don't get the Chaps thing, but probably because I didn't grow up with it, right? I didn't grow up in a town where Cowboys were wearing Chaps, but uh, I think village people than um, like legitimate Cowboys, so. Yeah, but... um, in my family, chaps were made fun of because you only wear chaps if you can't handle a saddle. So like part of the, like the reason chaps, like, you know, like, like crotchless and you don't have cover your butt because that's the part you're in your saddle, but it covers your thighs because everybody would get saddle sores, which is literally from your thighs rubbing the saddle Um. um, because you're not moving with the horse properly. It has all to do with how you're riding the horse, but that's a different thing anyway that's no, why I, chaps I, I, exist <laughs> i had no idea you know i mean i i guess i'm more of a city boy in the way i was raised because i was always on like military bases or you know military housing yeah. things like that um so i've never had any interaction with people who wore chaps for a legitimate reason like i said yeah. my my impression of chaps was always from like music you know yeah. um so yeah and then like sense. uh professional bull riders wear chaps because like you you know you're gonna come off the bull so um and whether you're hitting dirt or something harder you're it's still an abrasion so um uh that's uh, and also because it's flashy and everything about bull riding is flashy yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um did you go to any rodeos when you were in montana do they have rodeos in montana they do have rodeos in montana okay we were not rodeo people <laughs> <laughs> is that like a redneck leg too far or <laughs> um i think that there's a little bit of a misconception about like who rodeos are made for and people who do rodeo you have to have money to start uh-huh. um so because you have to pay the fee to get into the rodeo um and then you know you have to have money to have the horse trailer and all the equipment involved um and uh that kind of stuff so like everybody who did rodeo in my school like were with were from families that were much more well off um than we were uh like horses were for work like (laughs) and we didn't even have horses like once we actually moved up to the ranch and like we did everything on like four wheelers and three wheelers and that kind of stuff um and uh yeah uh rodeo is like its own culture um and a lot of that culture is uh from get kids who like had come from families that had enough money to have horses um that were specifically trained to do those kinds of things because like like you can spend god a stupid amount of money on a horse that is specifically like trained to be a barrel racer um like uh, one of my uh, the tennessee walkers that we rescued was a retired bell racer um because like she went down and she went lame so um that meant like after she recovered she when she cantered she crossed her back legs which is like not okay when you're 
doing rodeo um yeah. because like if she as i found out because it's how i broke my tailbone um uh if she gets going and she trips herself she goes down no matter how fast she's going um and so my dad was like, well, you didn't learn to ride bareback first. You're just a poser. And of course he was just making fun of me um, and giving me a hard time. And so I was like, I'll show you, I can ride bareback. <laughs> I went out there not <laughs> thinking about the fact that my horse was a barrel racer and like they're trained. If you like squeeze, they go faster. How do you stay on a horse without a saddle? You squeeze. Oh, she no. took off. She crossed her back legs. She went down. I went over her. She rolled over top of me, kicked me. And uh, I broke my tailbone. <laughs> you literally bust your ass. <laughs> I literally bust my ass. <laughs> uh, anyway, all that to say that like rodeo is a super niche thing and horses that are trained to do rodeo are incredibly expensive. Um, and so in order to do well in rodeo, to get the pot, to make it a viable thing to do, you have to have a whole lot of money to start. <laughs> it takes money to make money, as they say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and there's definitely like, uh, like I know people who like go broke, like in their adult life following the rodeo circuit. Um, Cause that's like, like just what they grew up with and that's what they love. Um, actually the tow truck driver that let me stay with him in Lewiston when I broke down on the pilgrimage, he used to be a rodeo cowboy and he just got stuck in Montana on a win winter and couldn't make enough money to get out again. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> that's rough and it's one thing to choose the place that you're stuck in it's another to like legitimately just be stuck you know like a, a mental stuck is way different than a crap i don't have any money yeah <laughs> oh man um so we we kind of covered this too but i ask everyone just because the name of the uh, podcast is the modern squid um yeah on a spectrum of full at gat to just full on squidding where do you kind of put yourself i am probably on the at gat side of things um probably not fully at gat because i know a lot of people would be upset like i don't really i don't ride with a helmet when we're on our our property because i never go over like 10 miles per hour i know it's <laughs> god awful um uh, so i don't ride on i don't ride with a helmet on the property but i normally have a jacket or gloves on or something like that um, and then anywhere, even if I'm only going to go two blocks, um, especially in this city, I always have gear all the time. And whether that is like the, like Oxford leggings, that's our Kevlar and they have armor in them, or it's, if it's my full suit, um, I always have full, full face helmet on always. Um, and I always have gloves on cause I feel naked without them. I don't know how people ride without gloves. Same. <laughs> <laughs> um so we covered like the serious part of gear now for more of the fluff i guess um <laughs> how important to you is the way the gear looks it's not very important to me yeah. um as long as it's not pink and swirly and sparkly <laughs> you know you get a variety of opinions some people don't care some people are like, if it doesn't look good, I probably won't wear it. So it's a necessity. <laughs> um, um, I mean, like, because like, I don't look good in the Aristotle suit. Just I don't. But it works. And that and like the armor fits where it needs to on my body. And that's what's important to me. Um, my like first full suit of aero, like not Aristotle, but of textile gear was like a Tora Master suit. And uh, that, it, it, by no stretch of the imagination, I could describe as flattering. 
and um that's the suit that I did the pilgrimage in and mm -hmm. so you can't really see most of it and like the photos a because i don't have a whole lot of photos of me in my gear on that trip because i didn't master the art of the selfie until afterwards <laughs> <laughs> and um b because it's all black um so in photos it gets super just like black like just contrasted out in comparison to the background um without having to pump up the iso super high um and uh, when I got the scorpion suit, I did look at their female version, but it like had pink on it. Like there was swirls embroidered everywhere and they changed the logo for the women's gear. So it was all in cursive. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it didn't even have thigh pockets. And that's like what I loved about the men's version of the suit. Like... <laughs> I don't understand why they take women's pockets away. I don't understand. It's like, in every aspect. And, you know, every woman I've either dated or been involved with has always complained about the lack of pockets and been yes. super stoked when they find something with pockets. It seems as if it's not even rocket science that yeah. a brand should consider women want pockets yeah. when they make something for them. I am yeah. flabbergasted. I feel like so much of that is like them not trying to compromise the silhouette of the gear by putting pockets that could become bulky. Um, just because just you like have it. pockets doesn't mean you have to stick stuff in them, right? Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like the silhouette, yes. if someone cared about the silhouette, then they wouldn't put something bulky in the pocket. Like, yeah, exactly. I know like a couple of people made like uh, jokes about my Yosemite suit, like the scorpion suit that I wear now that like the tan one about like the pants looking like some like English majors, like military uniform, you know, the ones that like poofed out on the thighs before like, because like, I always like, like the thigh pockets and those pants are like my purse, essentially. Like everything that has to go with me all the time are in those pockets. Like, and that's why I love that suit is because of the pockets. Not necessarily like, cause it's definitely not the performance in the rain. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's why I ended up with the men's suit because the women's version was like, so I don't, how do I say this and be po politically correct? I don't know. It was too feminine for me. It was too girly and I didn't like it. I am a person that does not like pink. I do not like sparkles. I do not like swirls. I, I just want something to look unisex. That's what I want. I think personally, as a man, so my opinion means a lot in this scenario. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the cliche girly that seems to bother a lot of the women that I talk to yes. when it comes to like brands that do make an attempt at women's writing gear. Yes. Um, you know, they never make an attempt unless you're like at wild or one of the companies that are running yeah. women. Like you never yes. see them making an attempt to make something feminine in a less cliche way. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Much better words. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm with you though, in that I don't, um, you know, I want my gear to look good, but at the end of the day, I really care more that it works and yes. you can see that in the pants I got. I got these riding jeans that make it look like I've got like a diaper hanging in the back of my pants or something because the cut is just so unflattering. Yeah. But they work really well. I fell down yeah. once in them. The hip armor is like right in the perfect place. I had no issues at all. No scrapes, no bruises. Like it works beautifully. So I wear it every single time I go out. But they look terrible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, just, that's just the pants part. You can stand behind your bike. Nobody needs to say them. Like, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the, the problem is the problem is that my super cool jacket is sort of ruined by my. Um, uh, let's see how I put this. I don't really drink beer, so maybe a Scotch Belly. <laughs> I like it. Yes, it's like, like this sleek, almost European esque. You know how they make motorcycle jackets? Yes. They're like um, yeah. not leather, right? Yeah, <laughs> like it's made for someone who's got Athletic sort of a felt physique. And yes. <laughs> when you've got a bit of a belly, it doesn't really look the same way. <laughs> so. Yeah. No. No. That's yeah. That's that's also the problem. Like they have like uh, the commercial women's gear. It's made for ladies that don't have curves, don't have a little belly. You know. <laughs> I like candy. I don't care. I love pasta. I'm yeah. Sicilian. Of course, I'm going to eat pasta. I'm never going to give up that. Just. <laughs> I. I found out I have a wheat allergy. Oh no! And I love pasta. Oh, I, uh, no. I lived in Italy for three years and <laughs> just developed an absolute passion for pasta. And later on, as I became an adult, I developed some sort of a wheat allergy. Now I can't freaking eat it, and it kills oh, my God. me. Oh, kills my God. me. It was such a staple of my diet. And I had learned to make different pasta sauces by hand and that yeah. I really loved, you know, and, and found um, different pasta that I enjoyed cooking. And now I can't have any of it. I had to like yeah. relearn different meals yeah. for myself. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like, this, wheat allergies, it means you can't even eat like gluten-free pasta, can you? Because that's wheat. Um, so gluten-free is hit or miss. Um, yeah. because what I found is for instance, oatmeal, right? Oatmeal mm -hmm. should be naturally gluten-free, uh, yeah. and wheat free, but they're often processed in the same, same buildings, factor. you yeah. know? So it seems to have the most frequent cross-contamination of any food that I try. Cause you know, a lot yeah. of foods that you eat will say, you know, there's no wheat, but it's processed in a facility that has wheat but, and yeah. they, it doesn't bother me, but for whatever reason, oatmeal, is completely unreliable. The like worst. I cannot eat oat milk. Uh, anyway, so yeah, you can. I can try gluten-free things, and nine times out of ten, if it says gluten-free, I'll be fine. But once in a while, I run into something like oatmeal, where it's like, no, you're never fine eating oatmeal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Sicilian <laughs> was your how how far back? How many generations? Six. Six. Uh, when, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sixth generation bitter because like my like great 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 grandmother was came from Sicily. And okay. uh depending on who you talk to, um our last name used to have two T's. She got rid of the T because she wanted to sound more American. Mm. Um and if you listen to my dad, it's because she was hiding from the Sicilian mafia. So depends on your imagination. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, I heard from a gentleman um, that I interviewed before that also the immigration people at one point in time, if, um, if they wanted to, they could just like spell your name however they wanted. Yeah. You know, so who knows? Maybe they came in and the immigration person was like one T. <laughs> You're out. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, no, the Zittos were one of the first family to be in the Bitterroot Valley and the, and the Bitterroot was settled like around like 
1890s, 1886 or something like that. So we've been in the Bitterroot since like 1896 or something, some, some, something around there. Are um, any of your siblings living there? Uh, Gary, my closest brother is living there right now. Um, one of, two of my brothers are still there. Yeah, actually, no, all three of my brothers are in the Valley. My sister is in Colorado. Um, I have to think about it because uh, Jason kind of goes all over the place. He's the second oldest and uh, like he's lived in Arizona. He's lived in Florida. He's lived all over the place. So I have to think about it sometimes. Um, he's kind of, uh, he's our resident transient family member. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, then at least you don't have a lot of pressure to go back because everyone else is gone and you're their last chance to have the legacy continue, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, thankfully my sister has kids. My, our, our eldest brother has kids. Um, I'm not having kids. <laughs> Good plan, Obviously. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or that's the plan right now. Knock on wood. Uh, things always change, but uh, it has always been my intention to never have kids. And if I did get the, I want to be a mom bug, I will probably adopt because I would feel too guilty about having my own child when I know that another child needs a home. So. I am right there. You know, all my animal. I have so many animals and they're all adopted. And, yes. You know, I've always said I want one of two things and this is going to sound kind of horrible. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but um, <laughs> I, I either, uh, because it's two different aspects of my personality are at work when it comes to children. So it's like, mm -hmm. I either want to adopt um, mm -hmm. if I ever get that bug to where I feel yeah. like, you no, know, maybe I do want a kid. Well, yeah. I'd really prefer to adopt. The only yes. other way I'd want a kid is if someone knocked on my door one day at 18 or older and said, hey, I'm your kid and I didn't have to raise them. And I don't have to have any guilt about abandoning them. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> like my mom never told you that she was pregnant. Oh my God. And here I am. And I <laughs> Those are the only two scenarios that I want children. <laughs> I like was like part of my my motivation a because like children are a lot of work but also because like watching my siblings trying to take care of their kids I recognize that at this point in my life I am an incredibly selfish person um I want to be able to just get up and go whenever I want and that like I'm very incredibly lucky to have a significant other that's like I'm going to I'm going to go home in a week oh okay I guess I'll see you when you get back. Um, but I can't do that if I had kids. Um, and I'm pretty sure I would do it anyway. So I'd be an awful mom. <laughs> <laughs> or you'd have to get like, I don't know how many car seats if you have, you know, like let's say you have twins, you'd have to get like a double car seat for the bike, like double pillions. Is yeah. That, yeah. Like, you know, like little baby helmets or whatever. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not illegal in whatever state you're riding through. <laughs> yeah so i just like i recognize that um i'm incredibly selfish like uh the only reason that our cats are still alive is because like jonathan and i split duties taking care of them um for the record taking over a horse and cows is so much easier than taking care of like dogs and cats really <laughs> yes <laughs> but i mean scooping our litter i mean it's so much smaller <laughs> than scooping like horse crap right well that depends if your animals are free range or if they're in a stable all the time okay being redneck uh our stable is like a shack lean to the horses only go in there like when the weather is terrible they spend all the rest of their time out in the field like and so that's just like natural 
um, compost. <laughs> well, it's mostly grass, right? I mean, they're poop. Yeah, is, like, is like it's fertilizer. Yeah. Um, so you don't, you don't go out and skip, skip, scoop up their poop and that kind of stuff. And um, in the summertime, you know, you don't have to feed them all that much because they're grazing as long as you have enough property, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, and so like all the work is in the wintertime and I'm cooped up, any, cooped up anyway. It's not like I'm going to be out and about, like going all the other places, like in the wintertime, I'm cooped up anyway. So I have time to take care of them. And that's when they need to be fed hay and taken care of. Um, obviously like haying season is a whole other thing. Um, if you can't afford to buy your own hay, buy somebody else's hay. So you have to make your own hay. So then haying is a whole nother thing. <laughs> <laughs> see i'm just demonstrating my ignorance when it comes to farm life then because uh, the closest i've come to working on farms is i used to do corn detasseling uh when i lived in illinois and that was uh that's the closest i've gotten so haying then um now did you guys buy your hay or did you do the haying we do the hay you did the haying wow yes did you do the um, i think there's only the a couple i think oh we do squares um okay. dad did buy a. a Oh my God. What is the word? Swather, not swather. He bought a round baler um, at one point um, because he couldn't buck bales by himself. And it was before he was actually telling mom when he was going to go out and buck bales so that you can, he could have help. Mm -hmm. a mind blowing possibility having help. Um, <laughs> Cause you ask for it. <laughs> Anyway, um, he bought a round baler uh, so that he could like lift it with a tractor, but then the tractor went shit. So he went back to, to <laughs> square bales again. <laughs> um, and because like the round baler, like the tension on the twine has to be perfect for those bales to like uh, be bound up the right way without falling apart uh, mm. when you pick them up again. So there's still a lot of moving, moving parts on a square baler, but it's a whole lot less sensitive if that makes sense mm -hmm. um well i guess the stakes are a little bit lower too because the square bales are quite a bit smaller and less yes. distant size round ones that i don't know about but um, yeah all well, the round I mean, ones like, i've seen are huge <laughs> yeah like square square bales come in a variety of sizes we don't do the massive commercial square bales like our our square bales are like 200 pounds they're not that bad okay um are you like they're the ones that you would see at like uh uh cliche like ranches or farmers markets where you just sit on them those kind of bales yeah um so i guess let me ask you this then you might be getting to it but just out of curiosity um i've seen hay bales where they're completely brown like dry out looking hay and then i've seen some where there's like some green to it still mm -hmm. um is there a preferred way to do it or there's just different purposes for the different hays or um so it's a different kind of hay okay um and like this is part of like my education that happened when I was really little. So I don't remember all of it. Um, and it's not stuff that I have to think about all the time. <laughs> I just, I just go and buck bales. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but like there's alfalfa hay bales and then there's other kinds of hay bales. My dad is somewhere cringing because I can't think of the other kinds. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, uh, that is also like a part of the like color differentiation, but also because like a lot of people who are getting into ranching now who don't know or who just get started like haying and it's their first time, they don't realize like how much that hay needs to like dry before you bale it. Um, because like it needs to be in the sweet spot between wet 
and like totally dried out and dead. It needs to be somewhere in the middle for you to be able to bail it so it doesn't get caught in the machine because if it's too wet, it gets caught in the machine and gunks everything up, it's bad. Um, but if it's too dry, it won't bunch together properly. Um, and so it just ends up falling apart. So uh, you, it's like a terrible thing. You have to like wait until it's just the right um, consistency to bail it um, so you don't have a whole lot of issues. Um, of course, that's not always possible. Like if it's going to rain, you can't bale wet hay. Yeah. Um, so if it's like closer to the greener side, still wet, like they'll probably bale it to avoid having to bale it after it rains or something like that. Um, like the, the downside of haying is that it's so um, controlled by what the weather is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, on one hand, the way that it grows, like if you have a shit season and uh the hay isn't any good then you're kind of out of luck um you have to buy somebody else's hay um but like and also just like you know if it rains then you can't bail for like another like week or something until the hay is dried out and by then it's probably dried out too much and so much fun (laughs) so what do you think was the the worst part about uh working on a ranch worst part the part that you just enjoyed the least that like maybe you get up in the morning and be like, Oh, it's that day again. I feel like my siblings would have like so much, so many more complaints than I do because like they were forced to do so much more work than I was as a kid. Mm-hmm. And by the time that I was old enough to do all the work that they had to, um, while I was a child, uh, our herd had been slashed to like 12 cows and we didn't have to do as much anymore. Um, when I was a kid, we had like 80 head and we had like 120 acres. And then my grandmother got in a lawsuit with the neighbor because the neighbor was like, well, my property line should be like three feet this way onto your property. And, blah, blah, blah. and so uh, she had to, and nobody won because she had to sell the property they were fighting over to pay the lawyer. Um, and a ton of cows and like going from 80 head to 12 in the span of like two to three years is it's a lot. Um <laughs> So by the time that I was old enough to do all of the extra like tasks and like stuff that my, my siblings had to do when I was a kid, cause I was too little to do them. Um, we didn't have enough cows for me to, to bother doing it anymore. So. And, and um, you did the volume was so low comparatively that it probably wasn't yeah. as miserable. So okay. exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, every year we would have to cut cows, which is like where you cut the steers. Um, so they can't breed. So they just become burger essentially. Um, I know that Rosanna hated that because like one year, uh, she was standing in the wrong spot and when dad cut one of the steers, she got smacked in the face with his balls. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what happens if you don't pay enough attention to what's She's going like on. Standing like back over here and she knows like dad cuts and throws. <laughs> oh no um i pick on my sister a lot because like it's just too easy (laughs) she's older than me it's still too easy there's not Um, a lot of people in the world that i can think of that can say that someone threw bull balls and hit them in the face (laughs) yes I, i think when i was a little kid i didn't enjoy haying very much because like uh it was a lot of work. Um, and, uh, even for me, like we were like when I was like eight, seven, when I was actually physically able to start lifting bales and that kind of stuff, um, they like, we would trade out, like dad would let me get back in the truck and steer. 
um, when I got really tired and then I would like come back out and buck bales again. But that is very arduous, especially when you're uh, doing enough hay to support that big of a herd. Um, uh, and also because like the one year we were doing it and my sister put me on the edge of the tail of the truck and I was backwards and we hit a bump and she knew, she knew it would happen. We hit a bump. I fell off backwards into a cow by fresh, fresh cow pie. <laughs> it broke your fall. You shouldn't be <laughs> yeah. angry, you yeah. know, like that mm-hmm. probably saved you from serious injury. <laughs> and now you're besmirching the cow pie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm besmirching my sister who <laughs> stuck me on the tail instead of letting me sit on the wheel well. <laughs> oh, man. So what um, do you think is your favorite memory then about working on the ranch? Um, I mean, like most of my memories of working on the ranch as a kid are like a weird, like montage, you know, like when you think about an era in your life and you're just like a bunch of like little flashes of tiny moments happen in your head. Like that's the way like it is for me when I think about it. Um, I mean, like uh, cows were my first friends. I didn't have other friends my own age until I was in second grade. Like I just didn't, wouldn't talk to anybody. I didn't want to make friends. I just, I went to school. I did what I was told and I would like kind of like blinders on the whole time. Um, and the only reason I even met a friend in second grade is because uh, her, her name is April. She's still one of my best friends. Um, she forced her way into my life. <laughs> I used to like run out to this, the uh, tire swing and I would just spin on it by myself all day at like all, all recess and I wouldn't let anybody else get on. And uh, one recess I went out and she was already on it. And I was like, oh my God, I don't, like, I don't know what to do. So I spent like two recesses because this happened like three times in a row. She was already at my tire swing. And um, uh, the third day after like spending like two days, like wandering around the recess, like by myself, like not having anything to do for an hour, like came back and I was like, can I get on with you? And she's like, yeah, you want to share? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, she's like very outgoing. And um, so that's how I made my first friend because she forced herself into my life. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, bef- before that, like the cows were like my confidants. Like I would used to go and sit in the middle of the field and cows are very, very curious creatures. And if you're around them enough, they accept you as part of their herd. Um, like my dad likes to joke, we don't have cows, we have pets because dad has them trained that he brings out a white sack. They think it's cow cake. So they come immediately. Like, you don't, you don't have to shake the sack, nothing. You just come out with a white sack and they're like, oh, treats. <laughs> like, <laughs> cow cake is like um, oats and molasses and uh, all the good things. It's like candy for cows. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they're so spoiled anyway. Um, so anyway, I used to go out and sit in the middle field. So after a little bit, like, they would come back up and sniff on you and they little they'll rub on you as long as you don't like move or do make any sudden noises or anything like that. So then I would just start telling them stories. And uh, so like, yeah, cows are my first best friends. I have a very special place in my heart for cows. Um, coming across people who are afraid of them because they're huge is just hilarious to me. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you eat beef? I do. Yeah. Okay. And my mom, so I asked because my, my mother once um, raised a turkey 
and she called him Tom the Turkey. Everyone can, everyone can guess what happened. Uh, <laughs> but at her age, she didn't realize that, you know, all the turkeys that were raised in my, I think it's my aunt, my great aunt or something's farm would mm-hmm. get eaten. And yeah. so she'd gotten a lot of praise about how well she had raised this turkey. And so he became turkey dinner that year. And my mother was devastated. And my understanding oh, no. is that she wouldn't eat turkey for years because she'd made friends with Tom the turkey as she was raising him <laughs> and couldn't bear, uh, you know, to eat turkey for a while after that. So, <laughs> I don't you know. I was just curious if your bonding with the, with the cows at that age and like uh, left a similar and- impression or if it was like you were surrounded so much that it had become routine, you know, that um- the cows would go out for slaughter. I think that my family did an excellent job of teaching us where our food came from. And I think that like, like you said, like people don't realize like where their food is coming from. Like she didn't realize it was going to be food. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's like so much like with all the city kids that I have met, like they have no connection to where their food comes from, but I have always been hyper aware of like, you know, that cow in the field that we raised, we put all, we put all of the energy into making sure that it has a good life and that it's healthy and that it's happy and then in exchange they give us nutrients and that's like the equivalent exchange um and i think part of that is because like i used to go hunting a lot like i like watched my brothers like you know gut deer and like we have amazing jerky afterwards you know oh yeah like that direct like response of like understanding immediately at a very young age what death is and where your meat comes from um I think is all the difference really. Um, and like, and that's not to say that like, I am heartless. Like I love our animals, like, and uh, I like something that I couldn't get across to like the people um, that I met in our school that just hated me. Cause I was a ranch kid is that like, it's, I don't agree with feedlots. I, I cr- like when I saw one for the first time, like actually coming to Portland, like when we to tour my school it was the first time I saw a feedlot in my whole life. And I cried, like could not stop crying. It's could not believe that they had trapped all those cows into such a, sm- such a small area, no grass, it's all mud. All I can think about is like the like hoof rot that they must have and how uncomfortable it is. And like, they just never get to experience what it's like to be free. <sighs> it's a lot of things. And, yeah. um, and I think that's like a huge difference, like understanding like uh, where your food comes from and that it's sustainably sourced and that those animals had a good life. They weren't killed before they were, they needed to be. Um, we, we never butchered animals unless we needed food. Um, and uh, the other animals that we sold like um, to market was to keep the ranch running. So the rest of the animals could have a good life, you know? And most of the animals that we sold um, either went to uh, improve the bloodline of somebody else's herd um, or something like that. Cause we never like sold directly to like uh, the butcher. Um, uh, when we did uh, have to butcher an animal, but like, so we would have more meat in the freezer. Like uh, I think we had a deal with the meat locker that like, they would take half of it and they sell it in the front of the, of the um, meat processing area, Hamilton pack. Um, they sell it in the front to people who don't have animals. So they can come in and they know that like the, where those animals came from. Um, and like, you, they don't have like a ton of growth hormones. They weren't grain fed, which is incredibly unhealthy for the animal and for the person consuming the meat. Yep. Um, yeah. 
And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, not not to take away from any of the things that you just said, but they also taste way better when they're um, grass fed. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely tastes better. I, um, first when I moved to Portland and I ran out of burger, like, I brought a chest of burger with me. So I would have food. And when I ran out of burger, I wanted to make spaghetti and I went to the grocery store. I never bought meat at a grocery store before. <laughs> and, um, brought it home and it was 80% and I was sick. So sick for a week. <laughs> and my mom is like, Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, you need to buy the latest meat that you possibly can because our 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 cattle are angus limousine cross it's like the leanest cut you can get like there isn't yeah. a whole lot of fat and on top of that they're all grass fed grass fed not grain fed so there just isn't a whole lot of fat um and uh on, on top of that like if the animal is grain fed and it's fed a lot of growth hormones those hormones stay in the fat of the animal so well, not according to the industry that's interested in selling more of those cows. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, I, uh, while the farmer's market was still going on and, and pre our current situation, I was trying to get as much meat as I could from this company uh, called Double Check Farms out here. And yeah. um, they're amazing for a number of reasons. Um, one of which is that they don't kill any of the predators on their property. Oh, yeah. So yeah. they see, you know, if a rattlesnake or any other predator kills one of their cattle, they just see it as a, you know, part of selection. being in the desert mm-hmm. with their their cattle. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's so much that happens to damage the ecology of a place if you take out all the predators. So for mm-hmm. me, it was a, a really big incentive. I, I paid way more for meat um, from yeah. there than anywhere else, but I didn't mind. You know, yeah. number one, it tasted better. Number two, they were being good stewards of the land that they were on. Um, yeah. So I felt good buying buying the meat from yeah. them, and I can't wait for all this stuff to kind of clear up so I can go back to getting meat from them. Because now I, I yeah. try to buy like bison or chicken or something because the regular beef you get from the store is just oh my god, it's so bad. I, I don't enjoy it's it. So yeah. bad. <laughs> and also, what is mind blowing is it's still terrible meat, but the price has doubled since the pandemic. Like burger, yeah. Burger, like ninety percent burger used to be three ninety nine a pound. It's eight ninety nine a pound here now. Wow, it's insane. Well, I know trucking prices are going way up. Yes, um, and then a lot of the meat processing facilities were shockingly bad environments to work, especially <sighs> during a pandemic, and so a bunch of people got sick. So yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, like the, the meat processing plant that was like what in Ohio and they had to dump all, all that pork. Oh my gosh. All, like just. Ha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now that we've depressed everyone with our talk about, you know, the terrible lives that these cattle are going through. Uh, let's switch. It's just like an uh, example of how important it is to know where your food comes from. It is, but some people, you know, what what kills me is some people get, um, they get information and they sort of take the wrong message from it. You know, like the people that you are interacting in your art school that now think that every single person who's in the meat industry is the same as these terrible, terrible companies that are just sort of taking life and turning it into a factory, yeah. um, you know, which is not at all the same. Yeah, no. 
Anyway, on a more positive note, I love your shirt. Where's that from? <laughs> Thank you. It says support badass babes. Um, I made it specifically uh, for a company. Actually, her brand name is support badass babes. You can search her on Instagram. Um, she makes stuff like this. And uh, uh, part of the proceeds from like all the stuff that she sells goes to support events that celebrate women writers and um, efforts uh, to bring more women writers into the forefront of like uh, the media and that kind of stuff. So I know that she like support, she supports like um, events and uh, brands that are like are making women's gear and that kind of stuff. Um, her name is Carrie. I love her. She's amazing. Oh, I made this a design for her like a couple of years ago. I need to make an, another one for her. She has a couple of other designs as well that other artists have made for her, but she's super cool. Well, that one is really cool. Um, so now, so we talked about whether or not big companies have, you know, a role to play in getting women to ride. Where do you think is the most likely place to have the biggest impact? Not what should, but what do you think is the most likely to have the biggest impact on women riding? Oh my God. That's so hard. <laughs> it's like, it's mostly hard because like all the women that I know who ride, their motivations for learning to ride were so different. Um, like not one story is the same. Um, so like trying to figure out like what would be the most effective way to like get writing, like get more women writing. Is that like the question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause again, you know, big brands, we we're talking about earlier, big brands having a responsibility to kind of try to get more women to ride, not just because, you know, it's good business, but because, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't make any sense, um, in my mind, even ethically to kind of focus on one gender really. Um, but then, you know, whether or not we should, or they, they should or shouldn't is kind of aside the point. Cause yeah. I think what should happen and what's most likely to happen are different. So I guess what I'm <laughs> yes. asking is like, what do you think is the most likely, um, vehicle to get more women to ride? Um, God, like representation is like so important. Cause like, if you have more representation, like in mainstream media, big budget movies, if you have more representation of women writing and enjoying writing in it, not just being like, I use this bike to do a stunt. Like <laughs> if you actually have more representation of women writing, then it becomes more normalized in our culture, um, which then makes it more of an open gateway for more women to start writing because I feel like a lot of like the hesitancy of a lot of women to ride is because the like culture around like the way that we raise girls in general is that like girls should be safe you should do things safe you don't do that it's dangerous um and like I, there's a lot of studies like you, you know like if a boy climbs a tree like the parents are less likely to be oh my god don't hurt yourself if a girl tries to climb a tree oh my god don't do that you're gonna break something like you can't that's not safe yeah. um uh so like normalizing it in our culture that like yeah like women ride motorcycles that's a normal thing it's not abnormal it's not unsafe it's not like extreme like and I think like just having a girl on a bike doing a stunt in a movie isn't doing that because you're immediately putting the motorcycle in the most extreme place that it possibly could be. Um, yeah. Yeah. Main, mainstream media, I think, is like the, the place that's most likely to reach the most amount of eyeballs um, 
people who don't have family that ride people who don't know anyone who rides like and of course that's the easiest thing for me to say because i only knew that motorcycles exist because of greece too <laughs> yeah because like there aren't a whole lot of motorcycles in montana <laughs> like <laughs> mm-hmm. well you've got such a long riding season i'm, I'm actually a little surprised oh, yes. there's not more right <laughs> <laughs> and like and i like as a kid would not never have connected like four wheelers and like three wheelers and that kind of stuff to recreationally riding a motorcycle like um that was never in my head and like and even like my grandpa like saying when i was like a tiny child like oh i have this bike you can play with it like i only got to see my grandpa like a handful of times when i was a kid um so like that never really stuck around in my head so like really the thing that made me be like oh motorcycles are a thing cool motorcycles are a thing mm, was greece too like a arguably best slash worst musical <laughs> you're talking to a guy who hates musicals except like, i was a huge buffy the vampire slayer uh, fan and so they had a musical episode of Buffy that I still to this day think is fantastic. And it's the only <laughs> good musical that exists. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, but I have I my, that, that's my thing though. Like mainstream media, you're reaching a much wider audience of people who would not have been exposed to like that kind of culture otherwise. Yeah. I, I mean, I have my own opinion and I, w- mm-hmm. I want to get yours first, but this, this okay. is what I'm thinking. And it's um, I've only been formulating it for a few, like since last week, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Okay. Take it with a grain of salt, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, a conversation I had with Moto Bob um, for our interview last week is what really sparked this because he was telling me that uh, he runs into so many kids nowadays that say they want to be YouTubers when they grow up. <laughs> right? Like it yeah. used to be, you know, movie stars <laughs> or astronauts or whatever. And now it's YouTuber, yeah. YouTuber, YouTuber. And when you start to think back on um, the struggle the cable companies are having with so many people Mm -hmm. cutting the cord, as they call it, and just Mm -hmm. moving over to things like Netflix and YouTube Mm -hmm. um, for their media consumption, I actually think it's going to be YouTube um, that is the most likely place for um, young women to get exposed to motorcycles as a thing. Um, totally. assuming that the algorithm at some point throws a motorcycle in front of them yes uh, you know because yeah the assuming that their search terms go outside of uh their normal watch or, stuff. or they go through the uh the youtube rabbit hole where you start like clicking on videos and then it like suggests <laughs> another one and you click on it and another one <laughs> the next thing you know you're watching videos that have absolutely nothing to do with anything you've ever thought about in life and you wonder to yourself how did i get on this video <laughs> <laughs> and if totally. anyone you yeah. know walked in on you watching that video they'd be like why are you watching a video on training monkeys and it's like i don't know i was just watching i was watching amanda zitto's latest video and then like 12 video suggestions later here i am <laughs> but i actually think it's going to be um people like you and her two wheels and doodle um when you guys start building a backlog even more of a backlog of videos and um, young girls kind of coming up on YouTube as their first media experience mm-hmm. versus like you and I probably, I don't know how old you are. I mean, I'm assuming we're within like five I'm, years. 
28 for the record. Oh, never mind. We grew up differently. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like, you know, I, cable was like the big thing. Cable and TV yeah. over the air was kind of like the way everyone got their their media. But now, yeah, my my niece, she's three, and she she can pick up one of these things and like navigate to her YouTube shows right now so she's already like she doesn't care about tv she cares about yeah. youtube yeah and anyway, yeah so- I, I i i like grew up in like the 50 50 and also growing up in a, in a rural area means that like i have an experience like five to ten years behind the rest of my peers who grew up in a more urban environment um that's another thing that i was super fun to learn when I moved here. <laughs> what do you mean you didn't grow up with records? I don't understand. <laughs> Your TV didn't look like furniture. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, like cable was like a big part of my childhood. Um, we only had three stations when I was growing up. Um, and I only got exposed to like satellite TV when I got to spend time with like my other grandmother because she always had satellite TV. Um, Otherwise it was cable and it was only three channels that we could manage to get on the hill. Um, I I think that's, that's actually uh, over the air TV, not cable. Is it not cable? Oh, right. Over the air TV. (laughs) The uh, rabbit ears. Exactly. That was broad. I think they called it broadcast. It was called broadcast. Broadcast. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this reminds me of a class I went to where the people didn't know what a touchtone phone was. Uh, <laughs> they didn't know dial tone versus touchtone. Like they just knew that a phone was a it was a phone, but phones. Buttons. What do you? I don't understand. What do you mean the options for what kind of phone there is? <laughs> and like I like also got the wonderful experience of um, trying to access the internet through Juno through a landline. So you got to experience the oh, yeah. wonderful noises that come along with that and how slow it was. It took two hours to load one photo. Like, yep. so I, I've got to experience a very broad range of what the life was like before the internet um, and before I had ac- like readle- ready access to the internet all the time. Um, and also like, I'm pretty like, I don't know, I would call myself tech savvy. I feel like I learned stuff about technology pretty quickly um in comparison to some other people (laughs) um so i've got like the best of both worlds kind of um because i can remember what it was like without the internet without like when i spent most of my time outside i remember what it was like not having a computer i remember what it's like um having to share the phone with eight people um yeah and having to entertain yourself. What a terrible concept. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> you've got to wonder how much um, the lack of distraction played in developing your imagination. Because it's one thing to develop the skills to draw. It's mm-hmm. a whole nother to have the imagination to, to come up with a concept uh, for that drawing. Yeah. You know? Anyway. Yes. No, 100%. Um, and like so much of art is still derivative. There is no, like I am of the school of thought that there is nothing original. Everything that you make is a derivative of like a thousand other things that you've seen before. Are um, we twins? Because I feel, <laughs> too. I feel like I'm the only one, especially because I do photography a lot, right? And then yeah. it's constant debate about who's ripping off whose photo shoot yeah. or whatever. And it's like, guys, 
<laughs> no one is coming up with anything new. There's only so no. many ways the human body moves and so many different places you can put it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like the, the most original thing that you can bring to the work is your perspective. And that's it. Exactly. Um, and that's why like, I don't get upset when like people like, like, they'll like copy a topic or something that I did or like anything like that because it's like it doesn't matter because everybody's gonna say something different like you know unless you're copying my script word for word there's no way for you to present that media in the same way that I did like yep. who cares to mention, <laughs> if you follow any of the YouTube gurus one of the things they tell people is go look and see what videos in your genre that you're interested in making videos in um, like what is working out there and yeah. try to do something similar, you know, because if you're having trouble coming up with concepts, well, don't reinvent the wheel. Look to yeah. see what people want it's and give them there. what they want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're like, there's like literally only so many things you could do in the motorcycle niche. Like if you're trying to make content every single week, there's only so many things you can do, especially like when it's not riding season and you have to do talking head videos. There's only so much stuff that you can like set up and do really um, without having to like go out and do super crazy shit, like go to Tuk Tuk in the winter, which like people aren't crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't understand what, what's uh, when does riding season end? It seems to go on forever here. <laughs> Rub it in, would you? <laughs> Technically, if, like riding at season doesn't properly end in Portland. You can ride in Portland year round. You just have to have really good waterproof gear. Um, and I think there's only like two or three days a year in Portland where it actually gets cold enough to be icy so that it's not safe to ride. Um, but you can't really go outside of the metropolitan area because then you're getting into like either the Cascades or the coastal range. So you are stuck in town. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to ignore you. Um, no, you're fine. I, I, I realize have, that like you have another interview to do today. I, I do, but uh, someone keeps ringing my doorbell and oh. um, I get, I have cameras. So I was just looking to see who's ringing my doorbell. Because <laughs> uh, if it's my girlfriend, she went um, uh paddleboarding today and i just want to make sure that she wasn't like hey i need help carrying something in <laughs> yeah but it's just some dude trying to leave me a flyer so i don't mind letting him <laughs> just kind of hang out at my front door yeah. maybe get uh, one of those for dad so they can put it on the gate <laughs> oh my god i'm telling it's such a game changer because um especially in the in an election year you know it's yeah. like you yeah. get so many people calling and visiting the house and um if you're trying to avoid people in a pandemic the less yeah. you can open your door when you don't need to the better you know? yeah at least yeah. in my opinion no totally like we i grateful that this house is like a nice like see-through screen not screen door it's a glass door and so like open the main door and if i see them i'm like hey dude you know i've done door to door before i appreciate your time but i'm not gonna listen to you today and then i close the door <laughs> Oh, you don't have sprinklers that you just turn on and get them off your porch? <laughs> I wish. I'm kidding. Because <laughs> I feel for them. I have I've had to do door to door before to pay the bills, and it sucks. But the same yeah, time, I, mean, I don't have any animosity towards anyone ringing my bell. It's yeah. Just that uh, again, it's a pandemic, so for me, it's yeah. A, 
it's counterintuitive. Yeah. And my door is not glass. I mean, I can look out the window or whatever, but it's yeah. so much more convenient to like, if I'm in the other room watching Netflix or something, or oh, if I'm yeah. here talking to you, I don't have to get up and go, go look. I can just pick up my phone and be like, Oh, I don't have to be concerned with that. You know, yeah. And then move totally. on. Plus my bike is parked right there. And so this yeah, camera also that's covers kind of bike. important. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I always want to know who's like standing next to my bike. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful that this house has a garage. I'm also grateful. Like we live on a dead end. That's incredibly safe. Um, and like, well, I used to live with my grandpa and my grandpa didn't have a garage. So the bikes were always parked in front of his house and not in a particularly nice neighborhood. Um, it's becoming gentrified now. So it's a whole lot safer than it was. Um, but, uh, uh, somebody's bike got stolen literally kitty corner from our house like while both my bikes were sitting in front of our house and if it's very scary yeah. um and every time i come home from a trip i even if i was exhausted i couldn't like leave anything on my bike everything had to come in immediately um so that sucked and uh because living here with the garage you just like come in i know our all of our neighbors and being like essentially like two three streets removed from any kind of major thoroughfare it means like nobody comes down here unless they live here mm -hmm. um and so i know that i can leave my bike in the in the driveway like loaded and it's fine but also like i can pull into our driveway with my bike loaded and just like worry about unpacking it later yeah <laughs> it's been like four weeks since uh the end of that trip my bike still isn't unpacked <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's all about priorities. I mean, I'm sure the last thing you want to do is interact with the bike uh, in that way right now, you know, after yeah. after that long of a trip. Um, I actually have a garage. Uh, I've got a two-car garage, but um, a series of unfortunate events have made the garage um, non-functional for putting things into it. Uh, so the door was kind of like it wouldn't always go down all the way and it would come back up. Mm -hmm. um, and people were kind of like prying them open in the neighborhood and stuff. So I put the lock on, on it. Yeah. And my girlfriend didn't know that I had put the lock on the garage door and she needed to go out one day and she didn't look. So she just hit the button to make it rise and it's an old enough unit that it doesn't like stop based on resistance. You know, like yeah. I think some of them now, if it, if it encounters. Yeah, there's an automatic, like it it's stops. kind of like an elevator. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mine doesn't have that. And so it just like ripped a bunch of stuff off the um, track and broke things. And so I was able to get it closed and get it locked again but yeah. it doesn't actually function to come up and down. So oh, no. <laughs> the garage that used to have our two cars in it is now more of a storage space uh, yeah. until I can get that thing fixed. So Yeah, and like garage doors are not cheap. <laughs> no, no. And I, the, yeah. the, just the mechanism itself is, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It stinks, especially in Arizona, because even though the garage doesn't get cool, mm -hmm. um, it's really nice to have your cars in the shade at the bare yes. minimum, you know, yeah. because they're out of the direct sunlight. Yeah, it's not quite as hot inside the cars when you can put them in the garage. But, yeah, you know, it is what it is and it will fix it eventually. <laughs> For now, my bike goes on my front porch right in front of the camera. Yeah, that's, 
place for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. But anyway, I really do appreciate you talking to me. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, but I was like, oh, the podcast is still too new. Let me wait until I've got a few more uh, followers before I go and, and start messaging, uh, you know, you and uh, like Megan Stark and stuff. But <laughs> then I, I rethought it and I was like, you know what? If I want to talk to them, let me just shoot them a message. If they don't want yeah, to talk totally. to me, they'll just say no. Absolutely. Yeah. And the worst thing that people can say is no. It's always more worth it to ask. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I've heard no a lot. I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. If you'd like to hear more from Amanda Zitto, and you can find her on Instagram at Blind Thistle. You can find her on YouTube at As the Magpie Flies. And as always, there will be a page added to my website, themodernsquid.com, uh, with those links. Have a good one.